Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com And with Nurse Rivers, uh, I was at, you know, I was at great pains to try to get it right. Uh, I'll tell you a story. This story is not in the book. When she finally agreed to be interviewed by me, uh, what I did was not interview her at first. Uh, We spent three days together, the better part of three days, and what I asked her to do was to just drive around Macon County with me, take me to the places that were the roundup stations where they would gather the men, take me to these little black churches in Shiloh and Warrior Stand and these places that, you know, were in the middle of nowhere, and just let me see the study through her eyes and tell me stories, you know, tell me stories. And we would go down these dirt roads and we'd be in pine thickets and then we'd break out of the pine thickets and there would be the cotton growing up to the shotgun shacks and every turn of the, of the road seemed to trigger a memory. And she, would, she was a great storyteller and a warm, charismatic person. And in one of these turns, we came to a, uh, the classic shotgun shack and there's an, old, there's an elderly black gentleman sitting on the black guy sitting on his porch and she says, stop the car. So we stopped the car and she yells at him, Ned! Ned! I see you! And he gets off or gets up and his hair is absolutely as white as the cotton. His posture is ramrod straight. He's got cataracts that look like milk duds, you know, or white milk duds in his eyes. And he's got a cane, and he starts coming toward her, screaming at the top of his lungs, Nurse Rivers! Nurse Rivers! You come back! And they go up, and they hug each other. And he says, you know, How come you don't see us no more? You are a nurse! And she says, Shut up, Ned. Shut up, Ned. You can't have me and the money, too. You know, he'd gotten the settlement. You can't have me and the money, too. And they hugged each other. And I thought, Lord God, what do I do with that scene I just saw? I also saw Nurse Rivers when we were in Tuskegee. We would go back usually to this one cafe for lunch. And I saw her neighbors, her, the townspeople, black Americans, 
cross the street and not walk on the same side of the street with her. I saw her shunned. I saw both things. And I saw Nurse Rivers with the kind of, you know, dignity trying to keep her head up because she had spent her whole life in her mind thinking she did good and she had to confront the fact that what she did was moral suicide. When I interviewed her, and I, don't, I didn't put this in the book, but when I interviewed her and we finished the interview, something came up. Several times as we drove around, several times she would say something like, well, maybe we did do some things wrong, but people don't know how much good we did. And they don't know, you know, they don't, you know, maybe we did some, and I would cut her off. And I'd say, I don't want to hear what you did wrong. I just want you to tell me about what, you know, how it was. And just tell me stories. So after I turned off the tape recorder and gotten up and I looked one last time over my shoulder because in the little couch in her immaculate, neat little house, on the wall, over the couch, was a photograph of Martin Luther King and a framed copy of the Florence Nightingale pledge. Those two things. And I had looked at those one more time and I had turned around to her and I said, Nurse Rivers, a couple of times you've started to say something, and I've been unspeakably rude. I've cut you off each time. I said, I'd be very grateful if you'd tell me now what you thought was wrong. And she said, and she was, her lip was quivering, and she was trying so hard to maintain composure. She said, oh, Dr. Jones, we should have told those men they had syphilis, and God knows we should have treated them. She's the only person connected with the experiment that I know of who's made any kind of recognition of that wrongdoing. And I wrote a piece recently for a, you know, a kind of retrospective of Tuskegee. And I, in, I, in that piece, I called it a forgiveness. And I said, I hope that part of the legacy of Tuskegee will be forgiveness for Nurse Rivers. Because she lived then for the rest of her life with the moral catastrophe that was her life. But when I think about her, uh, a friend of mine who's a black African-American historian, when I wrote that book, called me, and we had an angry conversation. He said, the trouble with you, Jones, is that you're a goddamn guilty Southern liberal, and you don't know evil when you see it. That bitch was evil. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, May 20th, 2016. So I have been told that was author Dr. James H. Jones. Uh, he wrote Bad Blood, uh, which is, I think, widely recognized as one of the best volumes uh, if you want to study the notorious Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Uh, he was a guest on the program in 2012. That segment was not from his visit to the program, but that is the way that we began uh, the broadcast uh, and had him kind of explain more uh, about his thoughts on Nurse Rivers. He was able to interview uh, Nurse Eunice Rivers, a uh, black female, 
uh, who was one of the uh, low-level participants in this study that went on for about four decades uh, in Alabama. Uh, Tuskegee syphilis experiment is coming up in this week's reading of Harriet A. Washington's Medical Apartheid. Uh, We will not waste any more time. We will hop right to it. Context of white supremacy, fifth installment, Medical Apartheid, Harriet Washington, audio segment number one. Watching the Bones For many, the final manifestation of medical racism is the post-mortem display of African-American bodies. Without their consent, stuffed, mummified, or skeletal black bodies have been displayed in doctors' offices, anatomy laboratories, museums, traveling sideshows, and even private businesses. Some libraries and physicians still possess books bound in the skins of African Americans, souvenirs that were typically bought from grave robbers. Even in death, African Americans were bought and sold. They put my mother on display like a monkey in the zoo, complained retired Brooklyn teacher Frances Oglesby in 2001, as she announced her suit against the Medical College of Georgia for the return of her mother's remains and $800,000 in damages for pain and suffering. All that remains of Oglesby's mother, Bessie Wilburn, is a skeleton that has hung on display for half a century in the pathology laboratory of the same school that hid African-American bones in its basement. However, Wilborn, a poor, frail African-American woman who lived in Lincoln County, 60 miles northwest of Augusta, was consigned not to obscurity, but to display as an object of horrible wonder. Why? She suffered from Paget's disease, a bone disorder that deformed her skeleton so monstrously that she died of the ailment in 1950 at age 28. Augusta surgeon Peter B. Wright fully explored Wilborn's crippling bone deformities when he performed her autopsy, which he vividly described in a 1951 Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery article. Wright then removed the flesh from her body and reconstructed her skeleton, which he displayed at that year's winter meeting of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons in New York City. Her bizarrely arresting bony cage won Wright a medal for originality. Wilborn's family thought she had been buried. After Oglesby sued, the MCG eventually agreed to return Wilborn's remains and pay for their burial. But on her lawyer's advice that this would destroy evidence central to her suit, she refused. A Georgia Court of Appeals ruled against Oglesby in 2004, noting that the school had been immune from lawsuits when her mother died and that she had waited too long to sue. Wilborn's skeleton still hangs in the MCG, jealously guarded from all but MCG eyes. Displaying the bodies of African Americans has helped to alienate them from the health care system very efficiently. An incident in the life of a Dr. Simpkins of Lewisburg, West Virginia, was offered by a local biographer to illustrate that the doctor was imbued with the spirit of research and a desire to improve his knowledge of medicine. When an enslaved African-American named Tom was condemned to death for a murder in 1824, Simpkins said he obtained Tom's body by promising him all the gingerbread he could eat until his hanging. 
After the execution, Simpkins assembled Tom's skeleton and hung it on his waiting room door, where, the biographer explains, it terrified patients when the wind occasioned its movements. The latter detail is telling. Because Tom's skeleton is no symbol of scientific illumination, it has been transformed into a sort of medical boogeyman. Black bodies on anatomists' tables, black's skeletons hanging in doctors' offices, and the widespread display of purloined black body parts constituted the same kind of warning to African Americans as did the bodies of lynched men and women left hanging on trees where blacks would be sure to see them or cut up as souvenirs of racial violence. Yale historian John Harley Warner has observed that a symbolic parallel is also clearly visible between the formal stances in the dual tableau of commemorative professional portraits of medical students and the commemorative portraits of whites celebrating the lynching of African-American men and women. Warner has also noted that posing for professional portraits in anatomy laboratories with remains of dissected cadavers became an important professional ritual for medical students, a sort of specialized class portrait that highlighted their new professional and class standing and their completion of the anatomy course, an important medical rite of passage. Before 1920, the students were nearly always white and the cadavers often black. Images of African Americans who were lynched and dissected were treated alike in several telling ways. The dead bodies were often horribly mutilated. Body parts are excised and missing, and they are burned, castrated, or fresh wounds are visible. The bodies were also posed in undignified attitudes that accentuated whites' dominance over them. The lynched were shown handcuffed, bound, hanging, gagged, and tied to stakes, and the dissected had been flayed, propped up, with playing cards placed in their hands and cigarettes in their mouths, posed in chairs, or dressed in outlandish clothes or hats. The dead bodies were often stripped nude, or partially so, while the revelers tended to be well, even festively dressed. The white groups project an air of jubilant camaraderie and tend to look directly at the camera in an unselfconscious, even proud manner. Souvenir images of both types were often distributed in the forms of photographs or postcards of the anatomists or lynchers with the body. Actual body parts, such as fingers, ears, patches of skin, and bones, were seized, sold, and collected as souvenirs. Lynched bodies and grisly human souvenirs served as warnings to blacks that whites could torture them, murder them, and defile their bodies with impunity. Any African-American, literate or not, could read the same clear warnings in professional portraits of groups of jocular white physicians and physicians-to-be, posing with flayed, dissected black remains. The disrespectful use and display of black cadavers by white medical students is a recurring motif in physicians' writings. During the 1850s, Dr. Henry Louis Clay, a Southern physician with literary bent, published many raucous accounts of medical exploits by a fictional alter ego. In one tale, Dr. Madison Tensis, Lewis's protagonist, is a medical student who is secretly enraptured with the daughter of a Kentucky scion. Tensis ventures into the basement of his school where he spies a group of corpses, 
including that of a mother and infant. I strove to depart, but something formed a bond of association between that dead nigger baby and myself, which held me to my place, my gaze riveted upon it. I wanted just such a subject, one I could carry up in my private room and dissect whilst I was waiting for my meals, something to while away my tedious hours with. On impulse, he steals the body, hides it beneath his coat, and darts into the street, where he unexpectedly encounters his intended and her father and collides with them, spilling the dead black baby at their feet. My cloak opened as I fell, and the force of the fall bursting the envelope, out in all its hideous realities rolled the infernal imp of darkness upon the gaze of the laughing but now horrified spectators. Lewis's other disturbing tales also feature medically abused black bodies, including one in which he hides the face of a hair-lipped albino negro in his rooms to frighten the snooping landlady. Even Mark Twain's classic, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, includes a tale of terror in which Jim, Huck's forty-year-old black companion, is forced by his medical student owner to warm up a corpse he cannot see on a dissecting room table in a completely darkened room to get him soft so he can cut him up. Interestingly, this tale is now deleted from most editions of this book. Such narratives unveil the social acceptability of treating black bodies disrespectfully, and the widespread understanding that the corpses used for anatomical dissection were black. In Dr. W. J. McKnight's memoir, The Pioneer Doctor, Recollections of a Body Snatcher, he regales readers with tales of his years as a cadaver procurer, including a section entitled, How I Skin the Nigger. One especially repugnant tale manages to combine racism with implied sexual aggression and actual medical cannibalism. His fellow medical students play a prank upon McKnight by placing a cadaver in the bed of his darkened bedroom. Sliding into bed, he feels the body, turns on the light, and sees that the cadaver is that of an African-American woman, whom he dubs Black Sue. Admiring neither her color nor her temperature, he exacts his revenge by cutting flesh from her body and arranging for it to be cooked and served to his tormentors. Such cadaver stories reflect the importance of enduring anatomy and dissection as a rite of passage and bonding ritual for medical students. Medical aggression against black bodies, whether literal or literary, not only served to foster cohesion among the students, but also placed blacks firmly outside the medical circle. Old Habits Die Hard The use of black bodies for anatomical dissection died slowly in the South. As the 20th century arrived and progressed, the racial disparities in cadaver use persisted. So did the threatening display of black bodies. In 1912, when embattled African-American medical student Lewis Tompkins Wright walked into his first day of anatomy class at Harvard, he was greeted not by his fellow students, but by a strategically placed black male cadaver swinging in the front of the room by ice tongs inserted in its ears. In 1893, only 49 cadavers were procured legally at seven Baltimore medical schools that served 1,200 students. Johns Hopkins was the law-abiding exception, 
the school legally procured all its 1,200 cadavers over the next six years. However, two-thirds were black. In 1913, Alabama and Louisiana still lacked a legal source of cadavers. Seven years later, Tennessee grave robbers still supplied bodies for its state medical school and for Iowa City's School of Medicine. A 1913 survey of 55 medical schools determined that a large majority obtained most of their bodies for dissection from almshouses. Other major sources included hospitals and tuberculosis sanitaria. As late as 1933, Dr. W. Montague Cobb conducted a survey for the American Association of Physical Anthropologists, which revealed that many Southern medical schools of the early 20th century still used only black cadavers for teaching anatomy. By about 1967, in the period during which Addie Mae Collins's body was buried, 47 out of 87 schools received less than half of their bodies through volunteers and family donations. The rest were supplied by entrepreneurs. Compared to the past, in which African Americans constituted the majority of such bodies, anatomists assure us that today no such ethnic disparity exists. But there is no way to prove this because no federal oversight agency exists and no ethnic data are recorded. Moreover, anatomy professors involved are reluctant to discuss the provenance of the bodies, because each time an expose hits the newspapers, donations fall. In 1968, the Federal Uniform Anatomical Gift Act, UAGA, was implemented to modernize the distribution of cadavers for medical use, and each state has its own version of the UAGA statute. Today, cadavers are used not only for medical school anatomy laboratories, but also for scientific research and specialized surgical training. So the laws also govern the distribution of cadavers to mortuary schools, feet to the schools of podiatry, heads to plastic surgery residency training programs, and so on. The laws that dictate the distribution of bodies still foster disparities based upon income, class, and race. In general, the bodies that are used for anatomical dissection and research without the person or his family's permission are today's version of the friendless poor, the homeless, and proportionately more blacks than whites are homeless. Another group whose bodies are relatively likely to be donated are poor persons whose families cannot afford to bury them. According to Todd Olson, M.D., professor of anatomy at the Albert Einstein School of Medicine, these persons are more likely to be minority group members, but he could provide no statistics to support this. Thus, the disparity still exists, but in a less dramatic form. Once, black bodies in many anatomy laboratories outnumbered white ones. Now they do not, but they remain present in numbers that are larger than their representation in the population. No one has documented how much larger but the troubling disproportionate prevalence of black body parts, such as organs, corneas, and other tissues, is suggestive that blacks also make up a greatly disproportionate number of the entire bodies that are used in research. An overrepresentation of black body parts and organs in transplantation and in industry is driven by legal and medical policies, such as the 1987 amendment of the UAGA, 
which licensed the non-consensual retrieval of body parts. Medical policies include bias in organ recruitment and human leukocyte antigen, HLA, matching requirements, which exclude more black than white organ recipients, and thus render transplant kidneys unavailable to blacks, but not to whites. Legal bias also exists in the form of presumed consent statutes, which were enacted in the 1980s to increase the number of organs donated for transplantation, and which in practice provide black body parts without the consent or knowledge of the decedents of their families. Twenty-nine states allow the coroner or his representative to collect or harvest tissues and organs for transplantation and research via various presumed consent statutes, which presume that the decedent would want to donate his body parts. However, many blacks do not wish to donate their bodies and body parts. Only 5% of black Americans surveyed by DePaul law professor Michelle Goodwin considered presumed consent a legitimate source of organs. 86% of the blacks she surveyed thought that presumed consent should be illegal. It is blacks whose organs and tissues are most likely to be appropriated via presumed consent by coroners after autopsy, because coroners autopsy the bodies of persons who die in catastrophic accidents or homicides, and during the same period that the presumed consent statutes were enacted, the homicide rates of blacks and Latinos skyrocketed. Since 1980, black Americans have remained six to eight times more likely than whites to be murdered. I am in no way suggesting that this predominance of black body parts was deliberately engineered. But the confluence of presumed consent statutes and the appearance of black homicide victims on coroner's tables explains why their organs and tissues dominate body part scandals. For example, in 1997, the Los Angeles coroner's office was found to have sold more than 500 pairs of corneas a year to the Doheny Eye and Tissue Transplant Bank. Eighty percent were of blacks and Latinos whose corneas fetched a profit of 1,000 percent. Theoretically, at least, persons may opt out by preventing the harvesting of their own or their loved one's organs, if they know how and where to lodge objections before death. But few people in the affected 26 states know about the laws, which means that they cannot opt out. No public service announcements alert people in affected states, as they alert people of the option of organ donation and of the possibility of signing one's license in order to donate organs. The same high rate of homicide that delivers blacks to coroners' tables can ultimately deliver them to those of anatomists, because coroners also supply medical learning institutions through the provisions of the UAGA. Today, as in the past, most people whose bodies are so used never gave their permission, because although informed consent remains the gold standard for medical research with living persons, decisions about the donation of one's body after death are made by others. Olson says that in New York State, most cadavers are donated by families. Some schools, such as Harvard Medical School, preclude exploitation of any bodies by using only those of persons who donated their bodies before their deaths. But in most medical institutions, there are three roads to the anatomist's table. One can volunteer to be dissected or used for medical education. 
a family can donate the body after death, or the coroner's office can give a body to a medical school if no one with the legal right to do so claims the body and takes responsibility for the costs of disposing of it. In 1999 to 2000, half the bodies in New York State were donated not by family but by the coroner's office. Eight percent of the bodies used in New York schools falls into the latter category. These unclaimed bodies are more likely to be the bodies of the homeless than not. Few other people remain unclaimed for the two to four months that most schools wait before using a cadaver. Estimates from anatomists leave ample grounds to suspect that African Americans still run a greater risk of having their bodies conscripted for medical demonstration, autopsy, and display. Olson explains that there are no national data describing the proportion of unclaimed bodies to donated bodies. But the case of New York State is instructive because it distributes more bodies for scientific use than any other state. In 1999 to 2000, New York distributed 120 unclaimed bodies for anatomical dissection. One of every two bodies falls into this category. The racial disparity may persist, but still there is also evidence of a changed attitude toward anatomical dissection. This evidence lies not in numbers, but in new medical traditions. Students no longer mock cadavers by indulging in ribald poses with them. The gruesome genre of stories medical students tell themselves about anatomy class experiences has persisted, but no longer exclusively features disrespectfully treated blacks. Most hopeful is a new tradition, the anatomical memorial service. In the 19th century, the Medical College of Georgia and other schools blindly tossed the bones of African-American dissection subjects into its basement. But today's medical schools provide anatomical subjects with burials. Many medical schools also hold memorial services at the conclusion of each anatomy course. Family members are invited and students offer prayers, poems, thanks, and remembrances. There are candles and tears. One would be hard-pressed to distinguish these services from the memorials for any beloved friend or family member. Chapter 6. Diagnosis, Freedom The Civil War, Emancipation, and Fantasiecla Medical Research The regular, simple life, the hygienic conditions, the freedom from dissipation and excitement, steady and healthful employment, enforced self-restraint, the freedom from care and responsibility, the plain, wholesome, nourishing food, comfortable clothing, the open-air life upon the plantation, the care and treatment when sick, in those days, all acted as preventive measures against mental breakdown in the Negro. Dr. William P. Drury, Superintendent, Virginia State Hospital for the Insane, 1908. A witty statesman said, you might prove anything by figures. Thomas Carlyle, Chartism, 1840. His medical screeds indicate that Dr. Peter Bryce, superintendent of the Alabama Insane Hospital, thought of himself as progressive. He had run the Tuscaloosa Institution since its 1860 opening and prided himself on his currency with scientific advances in mental health. 
Unlike other institutions for lunacy, his was no human warehouse where diagnostic labels were applied intuitively and treatment was homey and futile. Bryce was scientific. He compiled carefully annotated case histories and observed patients closely before hazarding a diagnosis, informed by the very latest in medical research, even research on blacks. For unlike most southern asylums, Bryce's admitted a few black patients. In 1867, he had admitted a former slave of his, and now, the very next year, a hypervigilant 45-year-old ex-slave named John Patterson had been brought for treatment. Patterson was clearly manic, possessed of an unfocused energetic furor that Bryce had encountered often. The doctor believed that, as with other blacks with this condition, the psychological pressure of caring for himself, when Patterson possessed neither the intelligence nor the judgment to do, had proved too great, and Patterson had sunk into madness. Hence, Patterson's mania could have only one cause. Diagnosis? Freedom, wrote Bryce. However, Patterson's medical history belied this diagnosis, because Bryce meticulously documented the course of Patterson's mental illness over the previous dozen years, and Patterson had been free for only five. The pressures of freedom could not have caused his illness. But even had Bryce recognized the glaring illogic of his diagnosis, he might not have been swayed. After all, he had the weight of medical research behind him. As the Civil War approached, social changes laid heavy siege to the institution of slavery. There were still far more enslaved blacks than free, yet the specter of Negro freedom haunted Southern culture. In 1800, Washington, D.C., one of the most important slave markets in the country, was already thronged with 6,152 free blacks. By 1840, its 8,361 free blacks dwarfed its population of 4,694 slaves. By 1860, free blacks there outnumbered black slaves by more than three to one. There were other intimations that American slavery was doomed, such as the panic generated by the escalating slave rebellions. The deaths of 57 whites in Virginia's 1831 Nat Turner Revolt radiated shockwaves and engendered desperately repressive legislation throughout the slave-holding South. Some states, such as Tennessee, even forced free blacks to leave. Perhaps the unkindest political blow of all was delivered by Thomas Jefferson's grandson in 1831, when he introduced a bill in the Virginia legislature to abolish slavery. It was defeated by only seven votes. By 1840, the South's grip on slavery was loosening, but its non-diversified agrarian economy, political power, and medical advances remained utterly dependent upon an unpaid labor force. However, even more was at stake, because the burgeoning ranks of free blacks upped the ante in an all-or-nothing game of social Darwinism. Without the restraining effects of white control, the pro-slavery camp argued, Negroes and mulattoes would outbreed whites in short order. Indeed, the official count of mulattoes had leaped at least 50% in just 30 years, and this number represented only the acknowledged progeny of black-white matings. Southern whites feared that a proliferation of free, 
pale-skinned mulattoes would soon efface the all-important social boundary between white and black, rendering whiteness meaningless. Years earlier, they had frequented white Negro exhibits in circuses to experience a frisson of delicious revulsion at a distance, a Coney Island of the Southern mind. Now, the threat of the white Negro was too common and too immediate to entertain. The scientific racists rode to the rescue by explaining that mulattoes were too weak and infertile to infiltrate and replace whites. Dr. Josiah Knott was the most off-sighted articulator of this frail mulatto theory. In his paper, The Mulatto, a Hybrid, Probable Extermination of the Two Races if the Whites and Blacks are Allowed to Intermarry, Knott explained that mulattoes were an infertile, weak species, who died at a younger age than did whites, and whose progeny were born feeble. Thus, a mulatto's family line would die out long before the visible evidence of a black forebear became undetectable. Of course, slavery advocates came from disciplines other than science or medicine. Legal minds scaled the mountain of constitutional support for slavery. Philosophers expounded upon the natural law that made blacks inherently subservient to whites and spiritual leaders cited reams of biblical and moral sanctions for enslavement. But scientific medicine was beginning to trump other philosophies. Scientific theories of racial inferiority had strongly informed the entire nation's medical perception of African Americans as befitted for slavery, if only because few scientists outside the South troubled themselves to investigate. However, by the 1840s, the larger American social climate was inimical to slavery. The North's industrialized economy no longer depended upon cheap Southern labor, and the rest of the nation had grown jealous of the political power that the Three-Fifths Clause imparted to the South. Its slave population allowed Southerners to control Congress. International opposition to slavery had made it an institution truly peculiar to the United States. The nation had become a lonely Western trafficker in human chattel. The medical rationale for slavery, that inferior and feeble blacks were simply unable to govern and care for themselves, was derided as insular and self-serving, and counted few active sympathizers outside the South. In this contentious climate, the 6th U.S. Census of 1840 began enumerating whites and free and enslaved blacks, for the first time, the census also undertook to count the insane and idiots, 19th-century Argo for the mentally ill and intellectually challenged. Racism by Numbers When the census was completed, no one was prepared for its revelations. It enumerated 17 million Americans, of whom 3 million were black. But far more important it revealed that free blacks suffered far worse health, especially far worse mental health, than did enslaved blacks, who enjoyed low rates of disease and suffered almost no mental illness. These data bolstered pro-slavery arguments by providing copious statistical proof that slavery was essential to preserve the health of blacks. Printed in 1841 under the aegis of the U.S. Department of State, the document seemed the very model of objectivity. 
offering dense orderly rows and columns of numbers collected by census-takers without salient bias. Census data consistently documented how free blacks died sooner and suffered dramatically higher rates from every known disease, including tuberculosis, malaria, pellagra, and the final stages of syphilis. The census also revealed high rates of miscarriage and infant mortality among free blacks that in turn were ascribed to blacks' higher rate of sexual immorality and sexually transmitted disease. The census data posited madness as the most dramatic indicator of black helplessness. The North and South held equivalent rates of insane and idiot whites, but not of mentally defective blacks. One out of every 1,558 blacks in the South was an idiot or insane, but one out of every 144 northern blacks had similar mental problems. Thus, mental defects were 11 times more common among free blacks in the North than among slaves. Even the northern state with the lowest percentage of insane blacks, New Jersey, had twice the black insanity rate of Delaware, the southern state with the highest rate. This powerful scientific argument for slavery was fed by research conducted by the presumably disinterested federal government, not by southern slavery apologists. Slavery's defenders quickly roused themselves to explain to naive northerners the dangers of freedom for the sickly freedmen of the north, who sank into debilitating insanity when faced with having to provide for themselves, or indeed to undergo any of the pressures of daily life that whites managed as a matter of course. They claimed that blacks lacked the mature judgment of whites and were unable to resist the allure of liquor, indiscriminate sex, constant dancing, and frequent fighting. Medical case histories described how blacks almost starved after spending their money on wine and tobacco, or fell ill with tuberculosis after buying flashy clothes that were completely unsuitable for cold northern weather. Moreover, blacks' probable doom was not ascribed simply to lower intelligence, because their profoundly defective bodies were prey to a host of diseases that never plagued whites. The conditions cachexia africana, dirt-eating, or pica, hebitude, pellagra, and dysthesia ethiopica, which have been discussed earlier, were just a few examples, and new black diseases were still being discovered. Blacks' fertility had also fallen, allegedly because they were murderously indifferent mothers and absent fathers in the best of circumstances. Without white intervention, black children had even less of a chance of life than their parents. Slavery was also thought necessary to protect whites, because freely roaming sick blacks were perceived as vectors of infectious disease. The supposed concern for the health of blacks and alarm for the safety of whites provided a welcome dual rationale for enslavement, and it justified draconian public health methods such as racial segregation to contain the contagion of freed blacks. So little trouble do men take in search for the truth, Thucydides once observed, so readily do they accept whatever comes first to hand. The behavior of the U.S. intellectual elite validated his centuries-old lament. 
powerful statistical arguments for slavery were widely accepted in the corridors of power, and the census data spiced many a fiery political speech delivered by powerful politicians. The message found an especially vociferous champion in Secretary of State John C. Calhoun, a former medical student and an inveterate Southern advocate of slavery. Calhoun used the data to rebuff criticisms of slavery at home and abroad on a U.S. government letterhead. The shocked political opponents of slavery, intimidated by the statistical weight of the numbers and by the impeccable prestige of the U.S. census, never mounted a coordinated refutation of the census. Although it probably could not have prevented emancipation, the census research did contribute to a revitalization of slavery until the early 1860s. However, the celebrated census data were deeply flawed, as was revealed when serendipity, in the form of a broken leg, drew one of the finest statistical minds of the era into the fray. Dr. Edward Jarvis, a Concord, Massachusetts physician, was specially trained both in mental illness and in statistics, and helped found the American Statistical Association in 1839. But the next year, the peripatetic physician was ordered to bed with a fractured leg, and, bored, he began to peruse the census report. He was instantly galvanized by what he saw, because he was familiar with northern health statistics and realized at a glance that the census was riddled with serious numerical errors. Jarvis investigated and found that the census was a fallacious and self-condemning document, a mixture of accidental and intentional falsehoods. Jarvis, who was white, sagely refused to be drawn into debates about the merits or logic of scientific racism. Instead, he spent months analyzing the enumeration of black and white inhabitants and their health status. Jarvis compared these to independently verified data describing northern towns, their inhabitants, and the mental health profiles. He emerged with a catalog of misinformed calculations and the deliberate insertions of hosts of fictitious numbers. Some northern towns that had no black residents at all were credited by the census with insane Negroes. For example, Scarborough, Massachusetts, which had a lily-white population, was mysteriously endowed by the census with six insane Negroes. Dresden, Maine, which had three black inhabitants, was also invested with six insane Negroes. The 1840 census indicated that the town of Worcester, Massachusetts, was the home of 133 colored lunatics and idiots. But this was actually the number of white patients in Worcester State Hospital for the Insane. The mysterious appearance of these imaginary black insane was only the beginning of the census duplicity. When Jarvis compared the numbers in the federal census, which was still being refined, with the accurate, verified state censuses, the numbers for blacks and whites were erroneous. Even the numbers in the four printings of the 1840 census differed, without explanation. His damning indictment of the census criticized only the northern data. But even before Jarvis had completed his attack of the northern data, Dr. James McCune Smith of Harvard had deftly analyzed both the northern and southern numbers. Smith, an African-American physician, scientist, and social theorist, 
had earned an M.D. from Scotland's University of Glasgow in 1837, after American schools barred his entry on racial grounds. Like Jarvis, Smith was a statistical expert and member of the American Statistical Association. His clear analysis addressed the flaws in the Southern data, revealing that the census's methodology was so deeply flawed that it was tantamount to libel regarding the health and mental status of African Americans. Smith understood that black mental illness was destined to be under-enumerated in the South, where there was almost no accommodation for the diagnosis and mental health treatment. Blacks were typically barred from mental hospitals, and those too deranged to work were dumped into almshouses or jails, into which census marshals did not venture. Enumerators took on owner's word that his slaves were healthy, by which owners meant not emotionally healthy, but simply fit to work. Making the all-important racial assessments was a quixotic task. Census marshals had been told to go from house to house and to make note of every occupant to determine his or her race, either white or colored, and health status. Such a simplistic assessment of people who were varying mixtures of Native American, African, and European was a Herculean task in itself, and determining race was made futile by such laws as the one-eighth rule, or the one-drop rule, which tended to assign a colored label to anyone with discernible or known African heritage. Although race was hard to gauge visually, census-takers accepted a neighbor's assessment or simply glanced at a member of a family to determine its race, with predictable results. Take Jack Coon of Alabama. A federal census marshal had listed him as white in 1850, but that year's state census recorded him as a mulatto freeman. In the 1860 U.S. census, Coon was listed as Indian. It was similarly difficult to determine health status. Diseases such as syphilis, cholera, and pellagra were largely racialized, and whites who suffered from them were loath to admit it. Meanwhile, diseases such as syphilis were ascribed to blacks en masse. An owner's complaint that all his slaves were sexually immoderate and syphilitic was taken literally. Even legal status could deceive. Some planters misrepresented their slaves as free persons to avoid taxes. Census-takers were duped by the ruse, or were complicit. On May 3, 1844, Smith submitted to the United States Senate a memorial, a shrewd analysis of the census document, denuding its many fallacies and reducing it to an absurdity. His paper, Comparative Anatomy and Physiology of the Races, delivered before New York City's intellectual elite, also painstakingly refuted the science that sought to explain the excess insanity among free blacks including the popular theory that the Negro's arrested cranial development resulted in a smaller brain and lessened intelligence. That year, Jarvis published a similar refutation with this editorial comment. Here is proof to force upon us the lamentable conclusion that the Sixth Census has contributed nothing in the statistical nosology of the free blacks, such a document as we have described, heavy with its errors and misstatements. So far from being an aid to medical science, it had thrown a stumbling block in its way, which will require years to remove. His last sentence proved prescient. 
Congressman and former President John Quincy Adams propelled a resolution through the House of Representatives to compel Secretary of State Calhoun to re-examine the census for gross errors. But Calhoun appointed his friend William A. Weaver, the originator of the deeply flawed census, to examine it for intentional errors. Weaver pronounced the census flawless. Calhoun reported this to the House of Representatives, permitting himself a bit of triumphant sermonizing on the dangers of black freedom. So far from bettering the condition of the Negro or African race, by changing the relationship with the European in the slaveholding states, it would render it far worse. It would indeed, to him, be a curse rather than a blessing. This manipulation of public health data, specifically in furtherance of a racial agenda, illustrates that public health and medical research are not mutually exclusive. Worse, the erroneous figures and conclusions persisted in medical journals. In 1851, the august American Journal of Insanity reprinted without comment an article asserting the following. It is obvious, taken from the following schedule, taken from the 1840 census, that there is an awful prevalence of idiocy and insanity among the free blacks over the whites, and especially over the slaves. Who would have believed without the fact in black and white before his own eyes that every fourteenth colored person in the state of Maine is an idiot or lunatic? But finally, war achieved what science would not. It doomed slavery. Without Sanctuary Military medicine proved inadequate in the face of the legendary carnage wrought by the war between the states. Eighty-eight of every one thousand white volunteer soldiers in the Union Army died, but proportionally one and a half times more black Union soldiers, 148 per one thousand, succumbed. One northern officer declared, You can't replace these white boys, but if a nigger dies, all you have to do is send out and get another one. Still, it was much safer and healthier to be a black soldier than a black civilian. Most slaves fled the plantations when the war began, and most free blacks fled the South. This internal nation of homeless roamed northward, hungry, tattered, sick and penniless, seeking safe harbor. As the Union Army drove back the boundaries of the Confederacy, it initially took control of 750,000 black people, the government assigned responsibility for their care to the reluctant Union Army, which argued that it had neither the resources nor the expertise to give the refugee blacks the care they needed. Nevertheless, during its peak year, 1866, the Army's Freedmen's Bureau Health System comprised 46 field hospitals, 52 colonies, asylums, and dispensaries, smaller clinics, 118 physicians, and 406 hospital attendants. Waves of sick blacks were herded into camps without adequate nutrition, sanitation, or medical care. Only 138 physicians ever cared for the 1.1 million freemen who eventually lived in the camps, and many of these doctors expressed disdain for the black animals, as at least one doctor called the contraband in front of relief workers. Some flatly refused to care for them. The results were predictable. One out of every four freemen died in the camps. 
many died of rampant infectious disease, especially tuberculosis. Infant mortality, which had always run high among enslaved blacks, swelled exponentially. The African-American refugees themselves staffed and ran the camps, but always under the Argus eyes of paid white administrators. The high disease and death rate, primitive medical conditions, and callous attitudes of some camp physicians further fed African-American distrust of medicine. When the war ended, Martin L. Delaney, M.D., who had distinguished himself as an officer and surgeon during the war, headed the Freedmen's Bureau, but its medical services were sabotaged by a lack of financial support. When the Freedmen's camps dissolved, no public health support replaced them. Poverty and desperation trapped Southern blacks into an insidiously indirect new form of slavery, sharecropping. The exploitative, abusive medical care of slave owners was replaced by no medical care at all for most poor blacks, and disease and death ran rampant through black populations. However, 19th-century scientific medicine, bolstered by census data, perpetuated the belief that blacks' inherent inferiorities, not exposure, starvation, and neglect catalyzed by wartime privation, caused their public health disaster. The censuses of the post-bellum decades not only perpetuated but also expanded upon the racial libels of the 1840 documents. However, their principal foci were physical illnesses, not mental. By the time of the Eighth Census, that of 1860, Superintendent Joseph C. G. Kennedy was predicting the certain demise of black Americans. By the census of 1890, the black birth rate had fallen in relation to that of whites. Life insurance companies considered blacks uninsurable, and black extinction was actually predicted for the year 2000. These predictions dwelled upon the inherent and immutable physical inferiority that doomed the Negro and offered frequent predictions of his extinction. Census analyses ignored many environmental and external causes of illness among blacks, and blacks were held to be inherently susceptible to venereal diseases and to such black diseases as pellagra and imaginary diseases, such as hebitude, drapetomania, and struma africana. The theories promulgated by the census-takers were essentially updates of the old polygynist view that held such diseases to be immutable elements of blacks' evolutionary lot, and maintained that races could not survive outside their climates of origin. For example, the British anthropologist James Hunt claimed in 1863 that blacks could not live north of the 40th longitude and that death would ensue at such a rapid rate that they would perish like monkeys and lions in a zoo. Therefore, the census apologists saw preventive and corrective measures such as better housing, health care, and nutrition as futile. This tendency to see environmentally and socially triggered illnesses as inherent defects of blacks is a troublingly persistent trend in American medical research. One of the delicious paradoxes of quantum physics is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which warns that the very act of measurement changes the entity being measured, destroying the accuracy of the data. Similarly, the census's methodological clumsiness, accidental and intentional, 
horribly distorted the image of the African-American for decades. Yet the chief distortions of the census were intentional falsehoods, and these constitute yet another powerful example of how scientific fraud and abuse have often been traveling partners when it comes to research into African-American health. A successive assortment of mental health and intelligence theories were adopted, proved, and then discarded through the end of the century. These theories shared two constants. They were all detailed numerical assessments that indicated the lower intelligence of blacks, and they all measured a fixed attribute that could never be improved. Phrenology, for example, involved determining personality, including a propensity to violence, by interpreting the shape of the head. Intelligence was gauged by measuring the size of the brain, either directly or by measuring the cranial capacity of a skull. Scientists compared the values for various races, and each found the lowest intelligence in blacks. Furthermore, each detailed numeric was determined to be static and immutable. The same arguments for black mental inferiority that had kept slavery on life support were now applied to support claims of innate black physical inferiority. Blacks were also seen as a danger to whites and a vector of infectious disease because more blacks were now living in cities. In 1890, 12% of the 7.5 million African Americans lived in cities, although only 4% had been urban in 1860. Many spent most of their time in white households as domestic servants. Thus, the advent of the 20th century saw a complete reversal of a basic mantra of scientific racism. Medicine had once justified slavery on the basis that blacks were hardier than whites, and so were ideally suited to survive and to work in harsh climates that would have meant death to more delicate whites. Now it was African Americans who were adjudged too delicate to survive. A familiar theme of medical journals and popular magazine articles alike became, Would Blacks Survive the New Century? Burgeoning Black Diseases Turn-of-the-century research into the once rampant disorder pellagra illustrates the tenacity of the identification of disease with inherent black frailty. Pellagra is marked by a constellation of symptoms, as deep skin eruptions are followed by diarrhea, dementia, and in 40% of cases, death. Many survivors were relegated to mental institutions. It was long considered a black infectious disease caused by poor hygiene and was also called the sharecropper's scourge. Pellagra was actually neither a black disease nor infectious, but a deficiency disease caused by poor blacks' sparse and monotonous diet of white corn and inferior fatty pork, which was severely deficient in niacin, an essential amino acid. But after 1906, economic downturns and changes in processing corn that removed remaining traces of niacin fueled a more widespread nutritional deficiency among white Southerners as well, and pellagra was now recognized as a public health emergency. In 1914, the United States Marine Hospital Service, USMHS, forerunner of the U.S. Public Health Service, assigned Joseph Goldberger, M.D., to investigate. Goldberger, 
the industrious son of Jewish immigrants and an 1895 honors graduate of Bellevue Hospital Medical School, doubted that pellagra was a black disease. In addition, he did not believe it was infectious, because he had noted that the patients, but not the staff of institutions, tended to contract it, and infections tend to be more democratic. He decided that the ultimate proof of the disease's non-infectious, non-racial nature would lie in inducing pellagra in healthy white people. He did this by limiting a group of white jail inmates to a strict diet, one similar to that on which poor blacks had subsisted for centuries. Because they developed the disease, Goldberger was able to demonstrate that pellagra was not infectious, but a deficiency disease that affected blacks and whites alike. Goldberger had divorced pellagra from race, but unfortunately, this revelation was resented and ignored. The nutritional, non-racial nature of pellagra became forbidden knowledge, just as the refutation of the 1840 census had been. As a result, this easily preventable disease remained epidemic until 1940. Pellagra was one of many diseases that fed the early 20th century black health crisis. The next important black disease to be discovered was more demonstrably racial than pellagra. In the 1870s, scattered reports had appeared of black patients who suffered from a constellation of mystifying symptoms that included excruciating pain, bruising, mysterious strokes, anemia, and extensive sores. In late 1904, Walter Clement Noel, a wealthy black first-year student at the Chicago College of Dental Surgery from Grenada, was admitted to the Presbyterian Hospital. Dr. Ernest E. Irons, the intern who cared for him, obtained a medical history and performed routine physical blood and urine examinations. In the blood smear, Irons saw that Noel's blood contained many pear-shaped and elongated forms. Enraptured, Irons sketched them, suspecting that they held the key to Noel's symptoms. He also alerted cardiologist James B. Herrick, his attending physician. Together, Herrick and Irons cared for Noel over the next two and a half years. But when Herrick wrote up the case for publication in 1910, including their opinion that Noel's was a disease that struck only blacks, he excluded Irons from the publication, and so received sole credit for the discovery of Herrick's anemia, which is now called sickle cell anemia, because of the elongated forms that Irons first recognized. Noel returned to Grenada to practice dentistry, dying only nine years later, at age 32. Many blacks had been treated for the severe pain and mysterious injuries of sickle cell anemia, even during slavery. But Noel's was the first case to receive such intensive attention and investigation, perhaps because as a wealthy foreign dental student, he was a medical insider and class peer of his physicians. Today, most of the 72,000 Americans with sickle cell disease are descended from Northern Africans or Sub-Saharan Africans. One out of every 500 African Americans and one in every 1,000 to 1,400 Hispanic Americans suffer from sickle cell anemia. Yet the disorder also affects millions of people of nearly every ethnicity in South America, Cuba, Central America, Saudi Arabia, India, 
Turkey, Greece, and Italy. In fact, almost anywhere malaria is found. For the common denominator of sickle cell disease is not race, but living in proximity to the malaria-bearing Anopheles mosquito. Possessing a gene for sickle cell disease affords protection against some strains of malaria, and so people with this gene have an evolutionary advantage in areas where malaria is prevalent. U.S. whites suffer from sickle cell anemia as well, but it is often misdiagnosed as a related blood disease. And when the occasional white person is accurately diagnosed with sickle cell anemia, this is still presumed tantamount to the discovery of an occult black biological heritage, rather than simply a case of the disease in a white person. However, within a decade of its identification, the erroneous belief that sickle cell anemia strikes only blacks became firmly entrenched, thus reinforcing belief in the inherent inferiority of African Americans. African American physicians did not passively accept damning indictments of black physiology. The slowly increasing number of black physicians, among others, rose to the challenge by establishing hospitals where blacks could obtain medical care. Daniel Hale Williams, who performed the first successful open-heart operation, founded Provident Hospital in 1893. In 1897, Dr. Alonzo McLennan opened a hospital and nurse training school, and, by 1916, Dr. Matilda Evans of South Carolina had opened three different hospitals there. Eventually, seven African-American medical schools joined these to provide the long-awaited entree to medical education for African-Americans. But in 1910, a single research report felled the schools. In 1908, the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching invited the influential Dr. Abraham Flexner to critique the nation's 147 medical schools. When Flexner's report was published two years later, it damned all but two black medical schools, Howard and Meharry, as substandard, sounding the death knell for the others, which subsequently found it impossible to attract funding. By 1924, only Howard and Meharry remained open. Even in the midst of doomed black hospitals and shuttered medical schools, these medical guardians actively refuted the allegations of inherent physical and mental inferiority. The story of how such African-American healers and researchers affected the trajectory of American medical research with blacks is related in several works, such as A Century of Black Surgeons, the history of the Negro in medicine, and making a place for ourselves. An important group of socially conscious white Americans made promising overtures as well, including physicians, leaders of institutions such as Metropolitan Life and North Carolina Life, which supported black health programs, and private philanthropies, such as the Rockefeller Foundation and the Julius Rosenwald Fund. The Rosenwald Fund would soon turn its attention to infectious disease among blacks by initiating a fateful syphilis control program in Macon County, Alabama, the home of Tuskegee University. 
context of white supremacy. We got a clean ending uh, on that segment, so we will start on chapter seven. Don't need a page number. Uh, the second audio segment will pick up on chapter seven. Uh, we are making excellent time getting through this book. Uh, we, by the conclusion of this week's study session, we will almost be at the halfway point. And I thought this book was going to take us much longer to get through and we will almost be halfway done uh, by the end of this week so great time hope folks are enjoying learning a lot fantastic read from miss harriet washington uh the number to dial is six four one seven one five three six four zero the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate, that number again, 641-715-3640, and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. If you do not have a phone and you still want to join us for the dialogue, uh, you can use the free Vope line. It's linked at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, if you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. That address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Uh, when you put that address in, click the link on the left of the page. It says free vote line. When you click that link, it will open a small window on your screen. The first line, it is a drop-down menu. Uh, select the number that I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. The next line. It will ask for the code. That code again is 564-943. The final line, it will ask for, the, uh, for a name. Uh, you can use your real name, nickname. You can press random keys, whatever makes you happy. Once you get all that entered, click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the live broadcast. You should be able to hear us. It is the same procedure. If you would like to participate, you will see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. When you do that, you'll hear the audio prompt. Press the number one, and we will get you on the line. Uh, if you would like to participate, uh, please do not wait till the last minute. Uh, go ahead, get your hand up if you think you have comments that you would like to share. We're not doing random comments. So if you have things that are not related uh, to the text, you saw a great film on television or had an interesting exchange with somebody on the way to the coffee shop today, save that for tomorrow. Uh, we're just talking about medical apartheid and this subject matter currently. Thank you. Uh, the folks that dialed in with a hand up uh, should be with us. Uh, feel free to chime in if you would like to participate. Hey, hello, can I be here? Uh, yes, we can hear you. Okay. Um, good evening, everybody. Devin down in Miami. Now, I um, just wanted to go over uh, page 134. Now, 
he has fitted or she has fitted for the um, the final manifestation of medical racism is the post uh, mortem display of African American bodies without their consent, stuffed, mummified, or skeletal black bodies have been displayed in doctors' offices, anatomy laboratories, museums, traveling sideshows, and even private businesses. Some libraries and physicians um, still possess books bound in the skins of African Americans that were typically bought from grave robbers. Even in the death, of, uh, and death, African Americans were bought. I thought that that was um, telling how the respect for black bodies has never, ever existed, um, period. Um, we were always placed on display like animals, and we were always used like you would discard a, a piece of garbage or a piece of paper. Um, so that was um, one piece that I had, and I'm sure that the other parts that I had are very popular, and some other uh, callers will pick that up, so I don't want to take up too much time. I just wanted to um, do that for this week. All right, thanks. For sure, for sure. Uh, was that Mr. Demery? Uh, Mr. Demery Ford, were you going to comment, sir? Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right, greetings, guys. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, just as the previous caller stated, um, the display of postmortem black bodies has got to be the lowest of the low. And it was something that whites commonly, one of their commonly accepted practices. <laughs> Uh, he summed it up on, you know, their uh, uh, pathology on uh, displaying, you know, uh, black bodies. But uh, what struck me, too, is the retired uh, teacher, <clears throat> Francis Ogilby, who just wanted her mother's remains to be put to rest. She filed a lawsuit against the uh, Medical College of Georgia. <laughs> Now, her mother's uh, bizarrely arrested Boney Cage one, uh, Peter B. Wright, the surgeon who performed the autopsy, a medal for originality. And um, what it takes to remove the flesh from the bones, you know, we'll probably never know, but it's it's got to be macabre. And another thing is the footnote, uh, number 68, <clears throat> of chapter five, you know, Miss Harriet Washington, I guess she, in 2004, she telephoned the, the MCG for permission to view Wilborn's skeleton. That was uh, Miss Ogilvie's mother, um, but was told that only medical staff and students may view it. When I explained that I was a fellow at another medical school, I was told that only MCG personnel could view it. And final note on that is the ladies' um, skeletal remains are still hanging in the uh, Georgia um, uh, medical school, <clears throat> and the court uh, court of appeals ruled against. Uh, Miss Oglesby saying that 
you know, school was immune from the lawsuit when her mother died, and um, she waited too long to file suit, you know. I mean, if you think about how black people feel about their mothers, you can kind of empathize with the lady. Her mother remains hanging up in uh, a medical college somewhere. Also on page 136, uh, they drew a parallel between the uh, commemorative portrait of white medical students and commemorative portraits of whites celebrating the lynching of African-American men and women. <clears throat> and I'd even noted that the, the white group, the uh, revelers, uh, so to speak, you know, projected an air of jubilant camaraderie and tended to look directly at the camera in an unself-conscious, even proud manner, which goes to show you that, uh, you know, they are not ignorant of racism. They they like it. They enjoy it. It's, it's amusing. It's uh, entertainment to them. And <clears throat> this guy that published uh, writings and books on fictional alter egos, <clears throat> talking about the stolen uh, infant that he dropped in front of a uh, laughing crowd, and he, he described the uh, the infant, the black infant, as an imp. And I think if you think about the word imp. He was acting more like a mystical, uh, evil demon than to call the little infant that, you know, in his writings. It was fictional, but <clears throat> uh, this literary and literal, you know, they, you know, where do you think you get these ideas from? It's, it's how the thought pattern works. Um, and I'll say one last thing. Um, when they started talking about the uh, uh, presumed consent, you know, it brought up some flags. And, uh, you know, if you think about the fact that what was done to us uh, before informed consent <clears throat> and how much is still going on in spite of the informed consent, you know that black families are probably in trouble when it comes to presumed consent, whereas they can, uh, if nobody claims your body <clears throat> or under certain circumstances, they can uh, remove organs, you know, from a corpse without the family's knowledge or without permission from the deceased. So I looked into that. And I guess she was saying it might be a, a typographical error, but in the beginning it said that it was 29 states that um, – had statues of this kind, and then later it said 26. So, you know, I did a little research, and I think that uh, Maryland, or the state where I live in, is one of them. But you know what? They do not want to admit that presumed consent is going on in the United States, but there was a task force commission, the General Assembly of Maryland, uh, commission a task force to look into presumed consent, and the results is due back on the desk of the General Assembly and the governor on June the 1st of this year, 
So it's only a few days, and we'll see what they actually came up with. They're not. I called some donation places. I was trying to find out how do you get this form to opt out. You know, if something happened to me and I'm victim of a homicide or something, I don't want my organs to be missing before my uh, family can claim the body. But it's very easy to donate organs. It's very difficult to find any information about opting out or protecting yourself or against uh, presumed consent. <clears throat> and I'll mute my line on that, give somebody else a chance, because uh, I'll come back later and talk about the census. Okay, thanks for taking the call. For sure, for sure. Uh, other folks uh, who had a hand up uh, who wanted to participate, feel free to chime in. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you guys, um, Mr. Demery, uh, Devin, all the callers and the listeners. Um, wow, this section is really profound. Um, I'll start with page 137 because Devin so, so, on so, so, uh, the subject I wanted to start with as well, and he did a great job. Um, it says here on 137, I strove to depart, but something formed a bond of association between that dead nigger baby and myself, which held me to my place, my gaze riveted upon it. I just wanted such a subject, one I could carry up in my private room and dissect whilst I wait, whilst, excuse me, whilst I was waiting for my meal, something to while away my tedious hours with. Wow. This just says, like, Literally, the destruction of the black body, genocide against niggers, is essentially how white savages pass their time. So he's basically saying, you know, and I can imagine how you're going to eat dinner after you're carving up a, a, a human bait, a black baby. Um, just really speaks to how sick they really are. Um, and the bottom of the page uh, was something else that I found very telling. It says in um, Dr. W.J. McKnight's mem memoir, The Pioneer Doctor Recollections of a Body Snatcher, he regales, reading with tales of his years as, as a cadaver procurer, including a section entitled How I Skinned the Nigger. One especially repugnant tale manages to combine racism with implied sexual aggression and actual medical cannibalism. His fellow medical students play a prank upon McKnight by placing a cadaver in the bed of his darkened bedroom. Sliding into bed, he feels the body, turns on the light, and sees that it's the cadaver that the cadaver is that of an African-American woman, whom he dubs Black Sue. Admiring neither her color nor her temperature, he exacts his revenge by cutting flesh from her body and arranging for it to be cooked and served to his tormentors. Such cadaver stories reflect an, the importance of enduring anatomy and dissection as a rite of passage and bonding ritual for medical students. Medical aggression against black bodies, whether literal or literary, not only serve to foster cohesion among students, but also place blacks firmly outside the medical surface cir cir circle excuse me um and it just really speaks to the fact that you know racism white supremacy is a rallying cry for white people this is what this is what, everything that we've talked about it's a religion it's 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 every it's their culture it's in their dna it's it just really proves without question that they are just the most savage creatures that have ever been allowed to walk the face of the earth um and for him to, and it brings me to mummies, cannibals, and vampires, too. I thought about that the moment that, um, that, that passage was read. But it just really speaks a lot about white psychopathology. On um, page 139, there's a section um, that says, no one has documented how much larger but the 
how much larger but the troubling disproportionate prevalence of black body parts such as organs, corneas, and other tissues is suggestive that blacks also make up a greatly disproportionate number of entire bodies that are used in research. An overrepresentation of black body parts and organs in transplantation and in industry is driven by legal and medical policies, such as the 1987 amendment of the UAGA, which licensed the non-consensual retrieval of black body parts. That made me think of, um, I believe his name was Kendrick Johnson, the young, the young black male that was found um, with uh, newspaper stuffed in his body and all of his organs missing. Um, I, I think uh, you had uh, said, correct me if I'm wrong, or, or spoke about the fact that something similar happened to Trayvon Martin. And um, it just really, really speaks to the fact that there is an incredible clandestine industry of organ procurement and um, that they'll do anything to steal our body parts for all kinds of unspeakable atrocities that they continue to practice on us. Um, the This one made me think of right now, stuff that's happening in the news. This section is on the page 140. It says, it is blacks whose organs and tissues are most likely to be appropriated via presumed consent by coroners after autopsy because coroners autopsy the bodies of persons who die in catastrophic accidents or homicides. And during the same period that presumed consent statutes were enacted, the homicide rates of blacks and Latinos skyrocketed. Since 1980, black Americans have remained six to eight times more likely than white to be murdered. This makes me think of Chicago, makes me think of New York City in the 80s when we were pushing the over 2G murder rate. Um, it's just interesting how um, our death is facilitating this industry and how it, it actually skyrocketed after the fact that they, they enacted this statute, which also makes me think of something that Pam talked about when she was talking about the fact that she does not believe, which I don't either, that all of these deaths are black people killing black people, that they're probably, whether it's, like she said, white militia groups, um, some one of the alphabet boys, police organizations that are facilitating this death too and just attributing it to black people. Um, it, make, it reminds me of uh, L.A. after the uh, Crips and Bloods had uh, formed a truce um, and it was actually, uh, they, they, they came out that it was L.A. police officers. Um, and one in particular took a car from a gangbanger, um, his, his red Cadillac, and went around shooting at Crips. And they talked about the fact that it was cops that basically went around shooting at other gang members um, as, and, and posing as the opposite side, which facilitated the deterioration of that truce. So this really speaks to um, us really thinking about what we do to one another and the whole concept of black self-respect in regards to um, preserving black life. Um, I'm not going to try not to take too much time, and I'll probably end up bringing up something later. But um, let me see. Oh, this, this is the last one I'll talk about now, and then I'll come up with something else later. Um, the last section I want to touch on is 152. It says, the census of the postbellum decades not only perpetuated but also expanded upon the racial libels of the, 18, of the 1840 documents. However, their principal foci were physical illnesses, not mental. By the time of the eighth census, that of 1860, Superintendent Joseph C.G. Kennedy was predicting the certain demise of black Americans. By the census of 1890, the black birth rate had fallen in relation to that of whites. Life insurance companies considered blacks uninsurable and black extinction was actually predicted for the year 2000. These predictions dwelled upon the inherent and immutable physical inferiority that doomed the Negro and offered frequent predictions of his extinction. Census analysis ignored 
many environmental and external causes of illness among blacks, and blacks were held to be inherently susceptible to venereal diseases and to such black diseases, in quotes, as pellagra and imaginary diseases as hepatitis and drapetomania and struma africana. Um, this kind of just really speaks to me. It kind of says that they were planning to genocide um, American Africans by the year 2000. And obviously, we, we must be some of the most resilient people that God ever created for us to still be here at all under these circumstances. But for us to be at this point, uh, thriving to the point where whites have a negative birth rate and we do not, speaks volumes. And this also speaks volumes to the fact that they, they were plotting hundreds of years ago to exterminate us. And we really need to think about that. Um, thank you so much for taking my call. I'll meet my line and give someone else a chance to speak. Sure. Uh, other folks uh, that we have not heard from, uh, feel free if you have commentary. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. This is Martha. Hello, everyone. Um, yeah, this this uh, recent chapter that we're reading sort of made me sick. You know, prior to us getting together, it's really it. This is just unbelievable. I mean, this goes beyond any. Any type of psychology you can imagine. I don't, I don't think the psychology we, we know we know today uh, does this justice. Does these people any justice? They they are like beyond any any understanding. Okay. And what I want to really say is, it's no way that every white person has to be racist. It's it. They, they had to be because when I when I was reading this book and then when I heard the um the narrator, when I heard all these type of phases like widely known, powerful statistical arguments, uh, scientific theories of racial inferiority, manipulation of data, practice wise, this was their culture. They were socialized. This was their whole socialization process. And I always say the socialization is a is a, a recipe. It's just a lifelong uh, recipe. They have to be racist. There was nothing else going on. But the primary feature of that time was black and white behavior. Nothing else was really going on that that they could say, "I'm not racist," or you know, "My my ancestors were not racist." All of this has been handed down to them, and it's still going on today. I mean, it, it, it has not stopped. So for them to think they're not racist, which I don't believe them anyway, it's just ridiculous. It's still going on today. Medical experiments, mental health experiments, manipulation of the data, you know, keeping, keeping information away from us, you know, uh, robbing uh, our people of their organs. I mean, there's no way these people cannot say that they are not racist. No way. No way. And I recall the other night when you and Pam uh, said that uh, statistics are extremely low, maybe one or two percent of us marrying these people. Well, you know, that's the most positive thing I've heard about us in my entire life is, is a nation of people. That, that's very positive. And, I, and it made me feel good when you said that because we, we, we know, you know, we may not know on a practical everyday level but we know is a nation of people 
what we're up against. We may not know how to approach them or get rid of them or, you know, whatever. But I think as a nation, we know that we've been socialized in these murderous, horrific uh, uh, events that they, that they, they, they put us through. This is our socialization process, though. We handed down the information to our people. You know, whether our people know it or not, someone told you or told us about this, maybe in a, uh, in implied way, maybe um, directly, but we know, I think we feel it's a group of people, and that's why we don't marry them. <laughs> but it's no way, no way. You just go throughout this book and, and read all these different phases that they're talking about. It was in journals. It was in and institutions, it was in memoirs, it was here, it was, everything was recorded. And it's still going on today. So that's all I want to say. But my question really is, why are we still here? And that's not rhetorical. That is not a rhetorical question. Thank you for listening. Uh, folks that we have not heard from, uh, did y'all have commentary that you wanted to add? Uh, feel free. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, this 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 reminds me. This book reminds me of all of my visits uh, to the doctors over the years when I was having issues with. Um, bleeding and fibroids and different things like that. And every doctor, you know, saying, get a hysterectomy. They just want to just take all your stuff out. Like, no other options that they that they give just every time. Just take all your just get the hysterectomy done. But I, um, eventually I cured myself after going through this for so long. I, I started um, drinking ginger tea. And that reduced the bleeding, the cramps, the everything. But yeah, that's this this book. Yeah, it, it made me sick to my stomach too. So I just wonder, like, this made me think and wonder what what they're doing with you know all of our body parts. Like, if I would have just let them give me a hysterectomy, you know, like, what are they what are they doing with this? Like, why are they so adamant about um, you know just removing? Your your body parts not really trying to give you, um, you know, a cure or a remedy for, it. and that's like the only remedy is a hysterectomy, and that's all I have to say. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, if you had commentary, feel free. Good evening. Shall I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers. Um, everyone has free commentary. Um, yeah, you know, this is this book is tough because I've already come up with the conclusion that, you know, probably for the rest of my life I'm gonna live under a system of racism, white supremacy. So, but man, it's like I can't even die, you know? They're going to dig up my grave, or they're going to not even let it get to the grave. They're going to take out your eyeballs and send them here for research. 
It's just like a real tough pill to swallow here, man. This is, you can't live or die. You know, it's, they got you either way. Um, just sad. Um, I believe last week, and I could be mistaken, um, I, I, I was going to ask, but it was a lot of people on the line, and I don't have the book. But did they say that it was like between a huge span of years, like between 1799 and 1899, that all the the black, like 70% of the black bodies were dug up from the graves? Did, did, did I hear that correctly? If it's, if it's from last week, I uh, had to go back and check. I think that would be like chapter oh, okay. five. Uh, I had to go back to yeah. chapter five. And I was in transit. They mentioned something earlier. It was like between in New York between 1990 and the year 2000, 50 percent of the bodies were donated to research of the bodies that were unclaimed or something. I believe that was this week. But either way, it's just the the numbers that they were reading. I mean, if I think I remember them correctly, um, or somewhat correctly, but it's just to me astounding how this is still going on, and um, it's like we have no chance, man. Life or death, they, they're going to be practicing racism on your body, and you're going to be, um, you know, man, I wonder if cremation would work to stop this. Or, I mean, what, what, could, it, what could be a I mean, they get you at the hospital. I mean, it could take out anything, stuff it with anything, you know, and, man, oh, it's just real tough. Um, it, and it reminded me of the, I sent you a story earlier, Gus, of a black guy from the Bronx, 22 years old, went to jail for robbery. And, um, you know, his parents didn't hear from him for a while. It was like a month. So they wrote us some letters. He never replied. So they looked into it. They went onto the website and he was dead. And then no one ever called him, told them that he died. And then when they went up to the jail, Oh, we don't know where the body is. So, I mean, he could have been donated to research a lot. Well, we know. I mean, these, it's, the people in jail have no rights over their body. It's, it's, they're practically slaves as per the 13th Amendment. So, it's uh, it, even if you're free, I mean, you, you know, you're in the medical center. They take out this for this person or that for that person and just go to your parents or your, your wife and say, oh, he's dead. You know, we couldn't save them, and you'll never know. No one ever know anything. And it's, man, I'll mute my line. Thank you. Hmm. Uh, the statistic uh, that I found uh, just off top uh, relating to last week, I think that was the first one that you said you weren't, uh, you weren't sure, uh, was that uh, historian Todd Savitt inventoried Richmond medical journals that described procedures upon 198 patients between 1851 and 1860 and found that by most conservative estimates, blacks constituted 48.7% uh, of the bodies that they were using, um, corpses uh, that they were using. And that paragraph continues, Walter Fisher suggested an even greater racial disparity of the 17 cases discussed in Richmond medical society uh, meetings between 1853 and 1854, 10 were black, uh, and she just goes on. I don't. Uh, I think you had said uh, was it a, a wider range of years? Uh, I haven't found anything that gives a wider range going into the 1900s. Yeah, what I was talking about from last week, it had to do with the um, the grave diggers mm-hmm. and um, how many graves were dug up between a certain amount of time. I think um, 
it was like that. Some of the black burial grounds. Um, like I said, I don't have a book, and I've been in transit you know, each time that is. So I haven't had time to like write things down and really, you know, do anything like that. So I'm just going off of what I, you know, think I heard. But I'm paying attention. I'm listening, and I'm learning. Thank you. For well, sure. Somebody else will call us from last week that. Uh, what he was talking about specific, I think that would be probably chapter four or chapter five, um, if memory serves. Uh, what he's talking about with the grave uh, robbing, chapter four, chapter five, where most of that information is, if you have the exact statistic or the date range. Uh, anybody that we missed? Anybody who had a hand up that we have not heard from? We got everybody that's grand too. All right. Uh, I will assume we got everybody. If uh, you had commentary and you have not shared, uh, do not wait till the last minute. Go ahead and get your hand up now if you have any uh, comments that you would like to share. Um, some of the things uh, that I wrote down, uh, you all, uh, great observations uh, already included. Um, I think at the beginning of the text this week, uh, where they were talking about Miss uh, Oglesby, uh, where her relative, her remains were, uh, Miss Wilburn, her skeletal remains are still uh, at the MCG facility in Georgia. I uh, thought all that was great. Uh, the footnote uh, Mr. Demery read, I thought that was extremely important as well, this ongoing uh, abuse uh, and degradation uh, of black people. Um, let's see... I thought this is right after uh, where she gives that at the beginning of the section that we started this week where she says American men and women. Uh, Warner also noted that posing for professional portraits in anatomy laboratories with remains dissected cadavers became an important professional ritual for medical students. I think Roz and some of the other folks talked about this uh, being the religion of white supremacy and uh, white people cannot be ignorant. This is their culture. Uh, I did think it would have been most accurate to say white men and women. I think sometimes uh, authors, white and non-white, will use euphemisms. And I'm sure she had some white editors uh, go over and you know make uh, edits or uh, suggested changes. But I think it would have been better white men and women. And I think it's important because I think most of the uh, maldoers, most of the racists that we have heard of thus far in the text have been white men. Uh, I think it's important to recognize that white women played a role in this as well. It seems a lot of times when we're doing these sort of uh, projects, the role of white women uh, in the practice of racism is minimized, ignored. Um, let's see. The uh, I think Roz touched on, I thought it was great, uh, This the writings of Dr. Uh, W.J. Uh, McKnight, the pioneer doctor, recollections of a body snatcher, uh, incredible. And the, this is his leisure activity. Uh, when we talk about, I think, Mr. Fuller, when he says uh, racist, they do not take vacations, uh, that everything is about the practice of white supremacy and abusing, degrading black people. Uh, I do this grave robbing and all this, you know, professionally. And then my leisure activity, I make fun of black people even then. And writing fictional stories put i guess you could even put that in quotes maybe fictional stories where and it even seems sexualized to some degree and i think she touched on that where they put a black corpse in bed with him 
black female corpse in bed where to me that kind of has some sexual uh overtones from what i know about racist man racist woman uh even i know dr curry talks a lot i think he's even written about the incident most recently where some white people males and females young white teens killed a black person and then had sexual intercourse on top of the body this is like recent within the last two three years um but he does this and then uh, to get back at them where he cooks the body and serves it to them. Uh, we've had so many uh, different books where it's talked about this, the delectable Negro, even another uh, recommendation from Dr. Tommy Curry, uh, the consumption of black bodies that might even be a Welsing moment uh, right there. I'm sure she would have some interesting uh, commentary on that as well. Uh, ingesting. Uh, and I think it was, it was the black skin specifically it's just cutting off some of the flesh from her body to get back at them so ingesting uh of highly melanated skin seems to be a long-running thing i know we've talked about jeffrey dahmer as well um the let's see next thing i had consent that's something i talked about before uh, i think uh, it was suggested that sometimes whites uh will make an effort to trick you into consenting to give that appearance uh, and i thought it was important that a lot of times they don't even do that they don't have to under a system of white supremacy they can just uh come in and be gangster about it like this is what it's going to be and if you don't like it you know hey (laughs) learn to deal with it or you know you can get mad about it and pout when we leave but this is what it's going to be uh and that seems to be the case in my view with these uh presumed consent laws uh just all kinds of ways to manipulate the environment manipulate the laws uh, so that they can do whatever they want and it gives the appearance that this is all legal this is all on the up and up uh, even though they make an effort so that you are not aware of these laws or what the loopholes are if you do not want to you or people that you care about you do not want them to be subjected to having their body carved up and put on display or their organs stolen uh, whatever the case may be so that you can avoid all of that they don't even make it easy for you to know uh, about all of that and I mean that's standard operating procedure i hear that so many times talking about racism where uh the black people are just not informed just don't have access to information i just say that all the time it is not white people that are ignorant about racism it is us um where let's see She says that a few times as well, uh, where without consent, where she continues, where she says legal bias also exists in form of presumed consent uh, statutes, which were enacted in the 1980s to increase the number of organs donated for transplant uh, transplantation, uh, which in practice provided black body parts without the consent or knowledge of the descendants or their families. Um, extremely important as well. Probably something that came in during the Reagan administration. Have to check to see which white people specifically were responsible for that. Um, where I thought it was really important, uh, this is in chapter 5, uh, where she says it's blacks whose organs and tissues are most likely to be appropriated via presumed consent by coroners after autopsy, because coroners autopsy the bodies of persons who die in catastrophic accidents or homicide, and during the same period that presumed consent statutes were enacted, the homicide rates of blacks and Latinos skyrocketed. Since 1980... Black Americans have remained six to eight times more likely than whites to be murdered. I am in no way suggesting that this predominance of black body parts was deliberately engineered. Uh, We have not quite read half of the book, although we are very close. We've done about 40% or so, give or take. I don't know how you could read what we have read in this book, not to mention all the other material that we've covered. Uh, Henrietta Lacks, 
uh, James Jones, uh, Bad Blood on the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. More of that is coming up in the second audio segment. Um, just the myriad of texts, Killing the Black Body, Dorothy Roberts. I don't know how you could look at all of that information in addition to everything else beyond just looking at health and think this is not a coincidence. This likely is something that they engineered. Maybe we don't have all the details. Maybe we don't have all of the evidence that this was done deliberately, but this is the sort of thing where I just, again, insist uh, there are no coincidences as it relates to racism, white supremacy, and we should uh, be thinking that this was done deliberately, continues to be done deliberately uh, as an act of racism targeting black people. Um, Moving to chapter six, uh, the the information about the census reports, at least to me, that's one of the major themes of the book. And I mean, so much of this is is just so gruesome and sadistic. uh, What we have heard thus far, I think for a lot of people, they've said it's been sickening uh, and depressing uh, at some level, just hearing about all of this. Uh, extremely important. But that's one of the huge things that I think has has kind of been, it's not depressing, it's not as exciting, but the deception, the out-and-out deliberate fraud. She mentioned that at the very beginning of the book, where she talked about all of these top institutions across the countries, colleges and universities, some of them Ivy League schools, where they have been caught, where they're making up data, where they're supposed to be publishing these studies and statistics that say this and say that and this new trend and that. And then you come to find out that some white person and all that just made this up. Just made it up, put it out, put it in a book, put our names on it, it'll look great. You know, take it down to, uh, you know, the lab, take it down to staples or what have you and and get some nice binding on it and what have you make it look really pretty get a heavyweight paper and yeah people will believe whatever we say and then you find out 10 years later oh my god this is total fraud that has been mentioned in this book over and over and over and over white people lie all the time that is one of the main practices of racism white supremacy and deliberately lying in order to strengthen their system. As many lies as we can tell about black people being dumb and stupid and ignorant and, you know, anything bad, anything that we can attribute to them that justifies, yes, they need to be abused. They need to be mistreated. Oh, yeah, you all are the worst test takers and you're the worst parents and, you know, you're the worst for anything that we can make up about black people and it'll be 20 years before he gets rebuked and probably the people that did it have already died and, you know, made millions of dollars that they passed on to their racist offspring by the time people found out that they've lied about all this um i thought that was especially uh important because she noted how the lies change as they need them to strengthen their system uh just continuing with some of what she talked about with all this uh where she says uh this is well for me it's 309 but she says uh therefore the census apologists saw preventive and corrective measures such as better housing oh that's not the correct one uh where she says uh There we go. Okay, wrong page, 311, two pages over. Uh, She says, the advent of the 20th century saw a complete reversal of of a basic mantra of scientific racism. Medicine had once justified slavery on the basis that blacks were hardier than whites, so were ideally suited to survive and to work in harsh climates that would have meant death to more delicate whites. Now it was African-Americans who were judged, who were adjudged, too delicate to survive. A familiar theme of medical journals and popular magazine articles alike became, would blacks survive the new century? Uh, And I think you see the same 
uh, sort of thing now. Uh, I mean, it's just rampant throughout the system of white supremacy where they can come one day and they'll tell you that, oh, this is great. I mean, you can apply this to any area of black t- uh, of racism, white supremacy, any area of people activity uh, where they will come one day and tell you this set of lies and then come the next day and go the exact opposite direction. Whatever is going to work, whatever we need to say. And again, if you don't like it, well, you know, you don't exactly have the muscle to do anything about it. So, you know, you just have to live with that, too. Uh, I also, we had a Breaking Bad moment uh, where she mentioned uh, Heisenberg. This was uh, the page before the paragraph that I just read. One of the delicious paradoxes of quantum physics is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which warns that the very act of measurement changes the entity being measured. People who followed uh, Breaking Bad, Walter White, the main character who is a drug dealing uh, killer white man and a school teacher on top of it uh his pseudonym to get away with his uh criminal activity and murders is heisenberg after this german scientist uh, and their debates online you can look uh his work to create an atomic bomb uh, that this person is still a revered uh scientist i just thought that was funny that he pops up in this text as well um also thought it was really important also uh this is Oops, 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 went too far. During the Civil War, I think we talked about this as well. I think frequently people get some sort of notion that white people, just because they might have been on the Union side of the uh, Civil War conflict, that they are not racist. Uh, once again, uh, that is a spectacular error. Uh, I think that gets propagated. It gets connected with Abraham Lincoln and John Brown and Harriet Beecher Stowe. All of these individuals, in my opinion, are still uh, on the suspected race soldier list uh, until proven otherwise. Uh, But what she says, 88 of every 1,000 white volunteer soldiers in the Union Army died, but proportionally one and a half times more black Union soldiers, 148 per 1,000, succumbed. One northern officer declared, you can't replace these white boys, but if a nigger dies, all you have to do is send out and get another one excellent bit of information you can file that one away anytime someone tries to go with that logic once again that you know the unions right on they were with us and they you know down the confederacy and and keep that in mind as well when they try and act like it's just the confederacy just the southern whites that were racist and bad um let's see there was one other piece of information when she was giving out the report, I thought I highlighted, I might have missed it uh, to make sure that I get the individual's name. But when he was talking about uh, the diseases, oh, I did highlight it right on um, when she was highlighting the diseases and they were talking about pellagra. This is uh, for me, it's on 313. Uh, and he says, no, I don't think pellagra is a you know disease of the negras. I think this is just bad diet, bad nutrition. Uh, white people can get this, too. This can be corrected. Uh, they didn't care. She says uh, he, you know, proved this. He did this by limiting a group of white jail inmates to a strict diet, one similar to one on which poor blacks and subst- uh, subsisted for centuries. Because they developed the disease, Goldberger was able to demonstrate that pellagra was not infectious, but a deficiency disease that affected blacks and whites alike. Goldberger, Goldberger had divorced pellagra from race, but unfortunately this revelation was resented and ignored. The nutritional non-racial nature of pellagra became forbidden knowledge just as the reputation of the 1840 census had been as a result. This easily preventable disease remained epidemic until 1940. I think that's hugely important uh, when we talk about racism, white supremacy. Again, white people are not ignorant. 
when they are presented with information that totally contradicts their racist concepts, their lies. We don't care. It's not that we're ignorant. It's not that we're poorly informed. We don't care. This is what we want to do. This is what we want to promote. And I suspect even ignoring this, I'm sure that some white people were harmed. Some white people ended up getting pellagra. Uh, who should not have been, who could have avoided all of this if they had just done the correct thing. They don't care about doing the correct thing. Even if that means some white people suffer, oh, well, this is what we're about doing. And, you know, just chalk that up to a part of uh, the war strategy. Uh, Last thing I will get in, I thought it was really significant, uh, the portion where she talked about the black medical facilities uh, and black people obviously having a difficult time getting access to medical care, particularly after the end of plantation era Uh, slavery where white people had less of a vested interest in seeing their niggers be healthy enough to go out and pick cotton or what have you. Uh, So they try to start making uh, black medical facilities to train uh, black medical uh, personnel. And one report, which she says in 1910, a single research report failed the schools in uh, 1908. The Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching invited the influential Dr. Abraham Flexner to critique the nation's 147 medical schools. When Flexner's report was published two years later, it damned all but two black medical schools, Howard and Meharry, as substandard sounding the death knell for the others, which subsequently found it impossible to attract funding predominantly from whites. Extremely important, in my opinion, once again, just showing the power of white words and a system of racism, white supremacy. All it takes is one report, one white person, and bang, knock down all of these institutions. Uh, Some of these HBCUs are still struggling uh, today. I just thought that was really uh, important, and uh, yeah, I will hush there. Uh, We have anybody who had any quick commentary they wanted to get in before we get to the second audio segment? Um, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, um, you actually touched on one of the things I was going to bring up, actually. Um, so I won't speak on that as of, as, as of right now. But there was um, one one other thing I wanted to discuss that I don't think you might have touched on. Oh, here it is. Um, it says the, the medical... Screeds indicate that Dr. Peter Bryce, superintendent of the Alabama Insane Hospital, thought of himself as progressive. He had run the Tuscaloosa Institution since 1860, since its 1860 opening, and prided himself on his currency with scientific advances in mental health. Unlike other institutions for lunacy, his was no human warehouse where diagnostic labels were applied intuitively and treatment was was homely and futile. Bryce was scientific. He compiled carefully annotated case histories and observed patients closely before hazarding a diagnosis informed by the very latest in medical research, even research on blacks. For unlike most Southern asylums, Bryce has admitted few black patients in 1867. He had admitted a former slave of his. And now, the very next year, hypervigilant 45-year-old ex-slave named John Patterson had been brought for treatment. Patterson was clearly manic, possessed of an unfocused, energetic cure that Bryce had encountered often. The doctor believed that, as with other blacks, with this condition, the psychological pressure of caring for himself when Patterson possessed neither the intelligence nor the judgment to do had proved too great, and Patterson had sunk into madness. Hence, Patterson's mania could have only one cause, diagnosis, freedom, wrote Bryce. This really speaks to me to the fact that, again, it's their religion, it's their way of life, white supremacy, and anything that has to do with, with African liberation is mental illness. 
So they've literally turned everything on its head as far as science is concerned, as far as any sort of really, I mean, I look at every scientific article with a skewed eye because I know that all of everything that they dictate has to do with white people and white supremacy. And this just speaks to like, nothing about them is accurate or scientific. It's racist, white supremacist. And that, like I said, that's all that matters. This is what we want to do. We don't care about the facts. We don't care about, you know, what the truth is. Our truth, the white supremacist truth is the only truth. Thank you. And I'll leave my line. Uh, we have a final comment. Anybody want to get in that you can do in like 60 seconds or less uh, before we get to the second audio yes. segment? Yes, ma'am. Be heard. Yes, sir. Okay. When they were talking about the census, uh, first of all, they were saying making the all-important racial assessment was a quatoic task. Census marshals had been told to go from house to house. And then later on, it said, such a simplistic assessment of people who were various mixtures of Native American, African, European, was a Herculean task in itself. And determining race was made futile. And I kind of had a problem with that word futile because, <clears throat> you know, these uh, martial sensor takers were white people and so they were tasked to classify others as white. And one of the uh, requirements for being white is to be able to distinguish a white person. And then um, it says here that if they had any problem labeling them, they would go by the neighbor rule where they go ask your neighbor or either look at a family member and determine your race by a member of the family. So if that old saying goes, if you had a black sheep in your family, you might all get uh, designated or classified as white people. But you know, <clears throat> they had a plan for that census. I think the census was just the beginning of what they had planned to do as far as putting uh, blacks into armed houses and insane asylums, and then it would be easy accessible to get their bodies for dissection and research. I'll mute my line on that. Thank you. Absolutely. That certainly continues today. If I can mention again, uh, protest psychosis, uh, where a uh, recent book that came out where it talks about just in the system of racism, white people, white people, like with racial classifications, we do the classifying for the quote unquote mental illnesses and diseases. If you want to think about ADHD as well with Dr. Umar, we do the classifying. So, you know, we'll just label you niggers, whatever we want, and then we can do whatever we want with you. Uh, quickly, there was a uh, reference to grave offense by Emily Baselin, uh, where she's talking about uh, like current day practices in terms of where they get these bodies from that they're going to do research and carve up and all that stuff. Uh, just quickly, she says, uh, some anatomy programs may not want to talk because their cadavers still include unclaimed body. New York City, for example, has one of the highest concentrations of medical students in the world. Four schools located upstate ship extra bodies when they have them to the city's many autonomy uh, anatomy programs. But those contributions usually don't make up the shortfall. So programs that need more cadavers take advantage of today's version of the 1854 bone bill. Of the 12,000 or so bodies used in New York State during the 1999-2000 academic year, almost 10% were unclaimed corpses from city morgues. I strongly suspect that a 
substantial proportion of these unclaimed bodies are black people. We will get to the second audio segment. Uh, if you did not get to comment, told you not to wait till the last minute. Uh, we will get you once we finish with the second audio segment. Uh, so we're on chapter seven, Tuskegee syphilis study. You can remember James Jones. The introduction started talking about Nurse Eunice Rivers. She will be mentioned as well. Chapter seven, medical apartheid, context of white supremacy. Chapter seven, a notoriously syphilis-soaked race. What really happened at Tuskegee? The future of the Negro lies more in the research laboratory than in the schools. When diseased, he should be registered and forced to take treatment before he offers his diseased mind and body on the altar of academic and professional education. Thomas Murrell, M.D., U.S. Public Health Service, 1910. We now know, where we could only surmise before, that we have contributed to their ailments and shortened their lives. Oliver Clarence Wenger, M.D., U.S. Public Health Service, 1950. In 1932, the U.S. Public Health Service inaugurated its study of syphilis in the untreated Negro male, Tuskegee Syphilis Study, which promised free medical care to about 600 sick, desperately poor sharecroppers in Macon County, Alabama. The study was designed, the PHS explained, to study the progression of syphilis in black men. Scientists had long claimed that the venereal disease manifested differently in blacks than in whites, and PHS scientists decided to document this by finding a pool of infected black men, withholding treatment from them, and then charting the progression of symptoms and disorders. But the PHS lied to the subjects, convincing them that they were being treated, not studied. When the men died, the physician researchers determined to autopsy them in order to trace precisely the ravages of the disease in their bodies. Among other things, the PHS expected to validate its belief in a specific racial dimorphism of syphilis. Whereas the disease was thought to do its worst damage to the neurological systems and brains of whites, it was thought to wreak its worst havoc on the cardiovascular system of blacks sparing their relatively primitive and underdeveloped brains. The Best Intentions The origin of the Tuskegee study was a benign one, however. In 1898, when Booker T. Washington, founder of Tuskegee Institute, met wealthy philanthropist Julius Rosenwald, founder of Sears, Roebuck & Company, they were mutually impressed. The head of the Rosenwald Foundation, who had a history of initiating self-sustaining black economic programs, had already generously supported beneficent research and self-sustaining industrial initiatives among black Southerners. He recognized in Tuskegee Institute a potential center of black industry, and in Washington, the man who could realize this potential. Rosenwald also realized that Tuskegee's promise was surrounded by the grinding poverty, public health vacuum, poor health, and rampant infectious disease of Macon County, and that this dreary indigence would stifle its potential workforce and limit its industrial growth. Together, he and Washington planned a Tuskegee-based program to provide medical treatment for Macon County, a system that began in earnest in the late 1920s. By that time, slavery had ended in Macon County nearly 70 years earlier, but in name only 
except for the staff and students of Tuskegee Institute, later to be called Tuskegee University. Most of the county's 27,000 blacks lived the same lives as had their enslaved forebears. In 1932, 82% of its residents were black, and half of these lived far below the poverty line. Their median income was a dollar a day. But like their enslaved forebears, they never saw a dollar from one year to the next. Trapped in the usurious cycle of tenant cotton farming, they were chained by debt and forced to work the same land as had their enslaved grandparents, and, like Alabama's slaves, they owned nothing, not even the crumbling shacks they lived in. These sharecroppers, including children, were weighed down by hundred-pound bags of cotton, living and working under the orders of white landowners who kept them in economic thraldom by paying low prices for their crops and charging inflated prices for food, seed, and other necessities. Those blacks who tried to flee the land were arrested, punished, and returned, or worse, just as their enslaved grandparents would have been. Beatings, lynchings, and murders that were never investigated enforced black serfdom. The strictly segregated schools were poorly equipped and sparsely staffed, and in any event, few families could spare children from the fields long enough for them to learn to read and write well. The only thing blacks had was a great deal of illness. But medical care did not exist for most of them. Fifteen of the sixteen doctors practicing in the county were white, and although the overworked black doctor would see patients for trade, a chicken, some greens, whatever the patients could spare, the rest wanted their fee in cash, plus a dollar a mile. The four doctors of the John A. Andrews Veterans Hospital tried to care for the sick blacks who appeared at its doors, but they could help only a fraction of them, for their job was to care for the staff and students of Tuskegee Institute. Poor nutrition, a lack of decent housing, and rampant infectious diseases, from malaria to tuberculosis to syphilis, haunted the sharecroppers of Macon County. The 1929 syphilis survey of black Alabama residents, commissioned by Dr. Talaferro Clark, chief of the PHS Venereal Disease Division, determined a high rate of 36% in Macon County. However, some other Alabama counties had higher rates, so this could not have been the chief impetus for the study. It is more likely that the presence of Tuskegee Institute, and later the John A. Andrews Veterans Hospital, made the site a scientifically attractive one. The survey also suggested that although treatment could eradicate the disease, 99% of the cases in blacks had never been treated. Syphilis was indeed a serious threat to health and productivity. The disease is caused by a type of bacterial organism named Spirochita pallida, or more specifically, Treponema pallidum, a spirochete. Spirochetes are named for their spiral shape. Under a microscope, the worm-like bacteria wiggle furiously. T. pallidum can be acquired through sexual activity or congenitally from an infected mother. In the initial stage of sexually transmitted syphilis, a chancre, or hard, painless sore, appears on the genitals or other point of entry, followed by flu-like symptoms. If the disease is not treated, it enters a long, latent secondary stage before emerging to inflict an assortment of skin growths, 
running sores, gumma, bone decay, and heart damage. The final, tertiary stage of syphilis may erupt several decades later, causing profound neurological damage, blindness, insanity, paresis, paralysis, and death. Because 30 years or more can intervene between the onset of syphilis and the dramatic mental symptoms of paresis or tertiary syphilis, it was thought to be a separate mental disease until the mid-1940s, when antibiotics, particularly penicillin, were discovered to cure it, and it was belatedly recognized as the final stage of an infectious illness, syphilis. Rosenwald responded by earmarking money for syphilis treatment programs. Unfortunately, his wealth was consumed in the stock market crash of 1929, and with it vanished the support for Macon County's economic and disease treatment programs. The U.S. Public Health Service stepped in, but PHS physicians never shared Rosenwald's goal of black self-sufficiency. The writings of its doctors reveal a lack of faith in African Americans' ability to manage their own economic and health issues. PHS physician Thomas W. Morell, M.D., expressed ambivalence about the possibility and even the advisability of eradicating syphilis among black Americans. So the scourge sweeps among them. Those that are treated are only half cured, and the effort to assimilate a complex civilization drives their diseased minds until the results are criminal records. Perhaps here, in conjunction with tuberculosis, will be the end of the Negro problem. Disease will accomplish what man cannot do. PHS doctors portrayed black Alabamans as resistant to health measures, intellectually inferior, impetuous, degenerate, and above all, at the mercy of frighteningly powerful sex drives. Morality among these people is almost a joke, and only assumed as a matter of convenience, sneered Morrell. Such medical speculation fostered an image of African Americans as sexually promiscuous and infected with syphilis, an impression that doctors reinforced with pithy sayings. Virtue in the Negro race is like angels' visits, few and far between. In a practice of sixteen years in the South, I have never examined a virgin over fourteen years of age, alleged Dr. Daniel D. Quillen of Athens, Georgia. Their point was that such sexual irresponsibility doomed blacks to chronic syphilitic infection. The PHS castigated blacks as a notoriously syphilis-soaked race, and Morrell predicted another fifty years will find an unsyphilitic Negro a freak. Unless some such procedure as vaccination comes to the relief of the race, and that in the hands of a compelling law. Dr. Frank Lidston theorized that black men were more likely than white men to spread venereal diseases. The Negro's well-known sexual impetuosity may account for more abrasions of the integument of the sexual organs, and therefore more frequent infections than are found in the white race. With imagination, rather than evidence as his guide, Dr. S. S. Hindman estimated the national prevalence of syphilis among blacks at 95%. But because clinical examinations did not support such widespread infection among blacks, Dr. Joseph Moore militated for Wasserman tests on all black men, opining that a mere history of a penile sore only would not be adequate 
inasmuch as the average Negro has as many penile sores as a rabbit has offspring. Despite the PHS physician's Cracker Barrel wisdom, family histories and clinical assessments revealed that 61% of the true syphilis cases in Macon County were not contracted through sexual activity, but were congenital, non-venereal syphilis. Medical researchers consistently ignored this fact in their publications and in their investigations. They persistently characterized syphilis in blacks as due to sexual profligacy. However, not all the men who tested positive for syphilis via the Wasserman test really had the disease. The test was notoriously nonspecific, and men who suffered from related illnesses, such as yaws, also tested positive, because yaws, a common non-venereal infectious disease endemic to West Africa, is caused by a subspecies of Treponema pallidum bacterium that causes syphilis. In 1932, Yaws was prevalent in the South, especially among blacks, not for racial reasons, but because it is abetted by conditions of poverty. People who were malnourished and exposed to the elements, went shoeless, and were prone to frequent injuries that broke the skin, the sort that cotton pickers experience daily, were vulnerable to infections by pathogens that caused yaws. Unlike syphilis, Yaws causes no long-term cardiovascular or neuronal damage. Macon County's high prevalence of syphilis, coupled with a nearly perfect treatment vacuum, suggested to Talaferro Clark not a need for treatment, but an opportunity for experimentation. In 1932, the Tuskegee syphilis study officially began when he suggested that the PHS save the expense of treatment by merely observing the course of the disease in blacks and publishing the data. PHS doctors frequently defended their failure to offer therapy by insisting that blacks with syphilis would never voluntarily seek treatment. However, this does not explain why they enticed study subjects by disguising the experiment as the treatment program promised by Rosenwald. The PHS doctors knew that being cared for by a physician who professed himself devoted to restoring their health would be a godsend to the sick, forgotten blacks of Macon County. Accordingly, the PHS announced a day of free health assessments and screening tests that would be performed in Macon County. PHS nurse Eunice Rivers remembers that the clinic was overflooded with people coming in to get their blood drawn. Oliver Clarence O.C. Wenger, M.D., wrote, Of course the crowd milled around like so many sheep, adding that 316 were given treatment before 2 p.m. Most had never seen a doctor before. The physicians ran various tests while telling the men that they were being treated for the nebulous disorder bad blood, which commonly referred to a wide array of symptoms from anemic blood to muscle aches, general malaise, disorders such as parasitic infections, gonorrhea, syphilis, and other venereal diseases. Doctors dispensed treatment in the form of vitamins, ineffectual doses of arsenic, and worse-than-useless mercury salve to those they suspected of having syphilis. Mercury had been used to treat syphilis for centuries, but, as described in Chapter 1, it was ineffectual and caused devastating side effects, such as injury to the nervous system, profound mental deficits, 
hair and tooth loss, kidney and heart disease, and lung injury. However, doctors withheld the state-of-the-art treatment for syphilis, which in 1932 consisted of arsenic compounds such as arsphenamine and neoarsphenamine, also known by their trade names Salverson or 606. These were developed by German biochemist Paul Ehrlich in 1910 and were typically partnered with mercury ointments as adjuvant therapy. After the first clinics enabled doctors to identify syphilitics, they selected study participants. They wanted only men whose signs and symptoms were on the exterior genitalia and therefore easier to identify than lesions hidden within the genitalia of women. They also wanted to exclude men whose syphilis was the result of a recent infection, because doctors could be sure of choosing sick men if they chose those in the secondary or later stages of infection. Identifying such study candidates entailed taking painstaking medical histories and performing painful, medically risky spinal taps, ostensibly to determine the extent of syphilis's neurological involvement. When the PHS sent out notices to invite subjects for spinal taps, the wording clearly indicated that participants were recruited under the guise of treatment. Some time ago you were given a thorough examination, and since that time we hope that you have gotten a great deal of treatment for bad blood. You will now be given your last chance to get a second examination. This examination is a very special one, and after it is finished, you will be given a special treatment if it's believed that you are in a condition to stand it. Remember, this is your last chance for special free treatment. Be sure to meet the nurse. When another throng appeared seeking the second examination, the PHS ran the spinal taps and selected 399 men with syphilis as subjects to observe. Again, doctors dispensed inadequate medications such as aspirin, which was craved as a miracle drug by the overworked, sickly men, who marveled at how it assuaged their omnipresent aches and pains. Raymond Vondelier, M.D., Talaferro Clark's successor, later added a control group of 200 uninfected men, who also were wooed with medications. When a dozen of these men developed syphilis over the 40-year course of the experiment, they were simply transferred to the infected group, a blatant violation of experimental design. Perfect separation of infected and control groups was necessary for any accurate and truly objective comparison of their health states. By switching a man from the control group to the infected group, the physicians falsified data because they reported an event, in this case a syphilis infection and its concomitant symptoms, as transpiring in an infected member, while in fact it actually happened to be a control group member. This switching also artificially reduced the number of men in the relatively small control group who went on to contract syphilis. The comparison over the entire course of the disease, which was the ostensible purpose of the study, was made impossible when someone was switched from active to the control group after the disease had been progressing for some time before diagnosis. Vondelier confessed in a letter to Clark, It is my desire to keep the main purpose of the work from the Negroes in the county and to continue their interest in treatment. 
but there was no treatment. The next year, 1933, the PHS doctors went on to write of bringing these cases to autopsy. If any doubts lingered about the PHS physician's intention to withhold treatment, O.C. Wenger, the PHS senior officer for its syphilis programs, swept them aside that year. As I see it, we have no further interest in these patients until they die. Like Joyce Heth, the aged black woman who was displayed, then dissected for profit by P.T. Barnum, these men were regarded by an impatient PHS as living cadavers, more valuable to American medicine dead than alive. Wenger, who has been portrayed as a public health hero in Paul de Kroof's 1938 book, The Fight for Life, eagerly awaited the men's deaths because autopsies would be necessary to confirm the diagnosis and the extent of injury caused by their untreated disease. These reports would be compared with those on the bodies of control subjects to characterize in terrible detail the ravages of syphilis. However, the physicians anticipated difficulty in obtaining the men's bodies for autopsy, largely because, as we discussed in Chapter 5, African Americans bitterly resented the fact that their bodies were often stolen and exploited for anatomical examination. Wenger wrote Vondelier, There is one danger in the latter plan, and that is, if the colored population becomes aware that accepting free hospital care means a post-mortem, every darky will leave Macon County. The only way we are going to get post-mortems is to have the demise take place in Dibble's Eugene Dibble, M.D., the African-American director of the Tuskegee Medical Center, hospital. And when these colored folk are told that Dr. Dibble is now a government doctor, too, they will have more confidence. The Surgeon General enlisted the Tuskegee hospitals to provide a site for spinal taps and autopsies, and he accordingly gave Dibble a PHS appointment. But because they feared losing track of the men before autopsy, the PHS doctors added inducements that maintain the treatment fiction. Eunice Rivers, the eldest daughter of a Georgia farmer and one of only four black public health nurses in the state of Alabama, was recruited from her dispiriting job as a night nurse at the John A. Andrew Hospital to serve as a scientific assistant to assist in procedures and examinations and to keep track of the men. Rivers looked in on the men periodically and dispensed the medicines, mostly aspirin, iron tonic, and vitamins, that made them believe they were in treatment. Rivers injected a bit of variety into their lives of drudgery and dispiriting poverty when she drove them into town for their doctor's appointments in a shiny black car and distributed the occasional inducements of a dollar or two. She waited while they visited friends and marveled at the manicured university lawns and the painted shops on the city streets. She listened sympathetically to the litany of sicknesses, deaths, and family woes, and helped when she could. She interceded on their behalf when the doctors were especially brusque or derisive. She was their friend. However, the men did not know that Rivers was also charged with tracking their movements, ultimately to ensure their presence at autopsy, which she didn't mention to the men, but would describe to their survivors as an operation to gain their assent. 
The PHS doctors still feared that the men would evade the hospital and die at home, cheating the researchers of the chance to autopsy them. So they offered free burials as an inducement. The Millbank Fund, an organization with strong eugenic leanings, agreed to pay the $50 fee, which was split by the funeral parlor and the physician who performed the autopsy. The men had the peace of mind of knowing that they would not end up unburied or in a potter's field. But this reassurance was illusory, because the chief reason they feared indigent burial was their fear of being autopsied first, and this was to be their precise medical fate. The syphilitic men were monitored so well that most received no treatment for forty years, despite the myriad dramatic changes in the medical landscape between 1932 and 1972. In 1934, PHS doctors met with local black doctors and asked them not to treat the men who were receiving care in the research study. The black doctors agreed. In 1941, the PHS circulated a list of subjects' names to the draft board, instructing military physicians not to treat any men who were inducted. When the United States entered World War II, Tuskegee syphilis study subjects were exempted from the draft because the PHS feared that they would be treated for syphilis in the military. In the early 1940s, some study participants made their way to the PHS's fast-track VD treatment clinics, which were vociferously dedicated to the eradication of syphilis. But a list of their names had preceded them, and most were physically removed. When penicillin proved an effective and safe cure for syphilis in 1943, a vigorous national program of treatment ensued, and some determined subjects did succeed in circumventing the government dragnet to obtain treatment. Thirty men, 7.5% of the infected study participants, managed to obtain an effective degree of treatment, prompting Vondelier to worry that the treatment might interfere with the study data. I hope that the availability of antibiotics has not interfered too much with this project, he wrote to scientist Stanley H. Schumann early in 1952. PHS doctors knew that this degree of treatment hopelessly polluted any data that they might salvage from the study. So they later put up a fictitious spin on the numbers of participants who had received adequate treatment, bolstered by the oft-repeated fiction that the blacks did not want or seek out medical care. These men still regard hospitals and medicine with suspicion and prefer an occasional dose of time-honored herbs or tonics to modern drugs. As men began to die, the PHS performed autopsies and regularly published the results in medical journals. They even shared study results at a 1936 American Medical Association meeting, which means many white physicians were informed of the study's details, but not African-American physicians, who were largely barred from AMA membership. The 1936 AMA report revealed that 84% of the infected subjects showed signs of illness. A decade later, the death rate of the infected men was twice that of the control subjects, prompting Wenger to boast smugly in 1950, We now know, where we could only surmise before, that we have contributed to their ailments and shortened their lives. By 1955, 
nearly one-third of the autopsied men had died directly of syphilis, and many of the survivors were suffering its deadliest complications. Forty wives were infected, and at least nineteen children were born with syphilitic birth defects. In 1958, the PHS awarded a Certificate of Appreciation, signed by the Surgeon General and replete with a gold seal, to each infected man, along with $25, a dollar for each year of the study. Mm. Context of white supremacy. Uh, if folks would like to share, feel free to dial in the number 641 Seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Anybody taking the position that Mr. Eugene Dibble, Doctor, excuse me, Eugene Dibble, one of the black physicians at uh, Tuskegee, or Nurse Eugene Rivers uh, is a no-good coon, Sambo, and should be flogged. Uh, feel free uh, if you want to take that position. Uh, the folks that dialed in that we did not hear from during the first segment, uh, call our last four digits, 1664, 1664. Did you have commentary you wanted to add in? Um, good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the other callers and participants. This is Karma, and... Um, I, you know, first of all, I just am going to have to say that white people are insane. They are completely out of touch with reality. Every word that comes out of their mouth comes out of a void that doesn't have anything to do with anything outside of anything except themselves. Um, I, I found that, that part in the, in the first part where it said that uh, white people uh, loathed but were fascinated and repelled by the white Negroes, because even though I don't want to say I have anything in common with them at all, I think that uh, Karma, you still there? Not hearing you? Not hearing Karma. Not sure. You got muted. Um, if there's interference with your line or what have you, but not hearing karma, lost you at white Negroes. Uh, hopefully, it'll get corrected. Uh, either she can call back in or she hit her mute button or whatever the the issue is. Um, in the meantime, it uh, looks like she disconnected. She'll dial back, I'm sure. In the meantime, other folks uh, who dialed in, uh, who have a hand up, if you all had commentary you wanted to share, uh, feel free. Yes, sir. All right. Um, I missed a great portion of the second reading because I had to take care of something at home. But um, I came in to pick up at least two things I wanted to bring up. One was on page 184 where she writes, there is one danger in the latter plan, and that is if the colored population becomes aware that accepting free hospital care means a postmortem, every darkie will leave Macon County. The only way we're going to get postmortems is to have the demise take place in Dibble's uh, hospital. I've, we already know who he is, in Dibble's hospital, Tuskegee. And when these colored folks are told that Dr. Dibble is now a government doctor, they too will have more confidence. And this really speaks to 
exactly what we see functioning today, how whites use black people as a smokescreen to hide their criminality. And then as a result, just what you just said about calling them a coon, they leave us to then fight amongst and hate ourselves due to what we see someone else do that's black at the behest of the white puppet master behind them. And it's that, that, that Pavlovian response to, um, and a lack of understanding of racism and white supremacy in the sense that that black person is not really in control of themselves. He, he might look like the head doctor, but he's not the doctor. Just, the head doctor, just like President Obama, looks like the president, but he's not the real president. You know, they tell him what to do, and he does whatever they dictate. And we really have to take a lot of time and work hard to understand that so that we don't um, perpetuate anti-blackness because that just facilitates their system. The second thing I wanted to talk about was on the following page. It says, however, men did not know that Rivers was also charged with tracking their movements, ultimately to ensure their presence at autopsy, which she didn't mention to the men, but would describe to their survivors as an operation to gain their assent. The PHS doctor still feared that the men would evade the hospital and die at home, cheating the researchers of the chance to autopsy them. So they offered free burials as an inducement. The Millbank Fund, an organization with strong eugenic leanings, agreed to pay the $50 fee, which was split by the funeral parlor and the physician who performed the autopsy. The men had a peace of mind knowing they would not end up unburied or in a potter's field, but this reassurance was illusory because the chief reason they feared indigent burial was their fear of being autopsy, autopsy first, and this was to be their precise medical fate. Um, wow. Um, even the way that, that this was written, this, that part where she says, um, the PHS doctors still feared that the men would evade the hospital and die at home, cheating the researchers of the chance to autopsy them. They're like vultures, um, and, and they're, they're so methodical in their plotting. And what I do see here is um, something that's funny. Um, uh, Dave, the host of Tando Radio Show, talks about this all the time, blacks having this blind faith. It's a blind faith we have in white people that they're going to keep their word or they're going to be honorable. And, I mean, like, there's so much evidence. Just the Native Americans alone is enough evidence to, to convince us that, you know, there's nothing that they do or say that will ever be honored at all. It's all about racism and white supremacy. And, of course, that blind faith is to our detriment. And to me, that paragraph really just stood out for that reason, that um, we need to be suspicious, like you say, of each and every one of them. Everyone at minimum is a racist suspect. My opinion, they're all racist. So um, thank you for taking my call, and I'm definitely going to listen to the entire broadcast tomorrow so I can catch the parts that I missed. For sure. Uh, I think uh, Karma should be back with us. Did you have commentary you wanted to get in, ma'am? Or we, we purged you up until white Negroes. You didn't want to suggest that you had anything in common, and then you dropped out. Yes, yes. Um, you know, I mean, they, they're really messing with my phone. But um, the thing is, we, we feel the same about black, white people. I mean, we really do. It's just like, yuck, yuck, yuck. So uh, I don't know what that's from, but I think it's the inauthenticity and the, the uncertainty and all of that stuff that just makes us feel so icky when you have black, white people or white, black people. Or I don't know, maybe it's name calling, but that really creeps people out. So also, um, and, and the, 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 I'm going to call them insane because compared to us, they are insane. You know, even though what they're doing for them makes sense because of their biology, but to us it is insane. The fact that they, they talk about their, their terror of the white Negro, all of these mixed uh, 
people, you know, half black and half white being born and then that they're terrorism that they're going to be dead. But when they're just going around raping everyone, they're raping everyone and then saying, what are we going to do about the problems of the white Negro? How insane is that? I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's like you can't see, they seem to, it's like there's a sincerity there, but uh, you cause the problem. You, you insist on raping everything with the age of consent being down to 10. So, and also, just looking at this makes me know that these people are, uh, are uh, unrepentant traffickers of men and women. For whatever purpose, whether it's to get the skin or entertainment or research or whatever, pain and suffering, they are just traffickers. They are traffickers of men and women and children. That's what they do. And that just means they're not men, women, or children. They're just something else entirely. Um, I, I was caught by the phrase when they said that black, well, first of all, everything they say about us is just a, uh, a projection of what they are. So when they said that black mothers are murderously indifferent, that really caught me because they are. They are mur- murderously indifferent to everyone on everything on the planet. But I really think that we can, we can use that because there is nothing, there is nothing that can resist uh, that level of murderous neglect, it, 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 will, it will destroy any biological function. Um, um, and there's one more thing. Um, oh. I, I mean, here's the insanity again. They're desperate to find a difference in the physiology of black people and white people. So they're saying, oh, you know, white people, if they do get syphilis, it's just going to be this neurological syphilis because their brains are so precariously precise and well-balanced. And black people are going to get this cardiovascular system because, you know, they're just little machines anyway. So they're desperate. They're desperate to do this study, to find that out. And yet they do all their studies on black people because of the similarity in physiology. And that's, I don't know if I'm making myself clear. One minute it's because we're different, and uh, the next minute it's because we're the same. Um, And I'm just realizing that uh, when they started talking about y'alls, which I've never heard of, and they said it was just mostly due to poverty and poor nutrition, it really reminds me of AIDS. And... uh, and uh, also the last thing I said, they are just one of their tools, one of their really, really, really tools that hasn't changed at all is biological warfare. They've been doing biological warfare, I mean, and we know it, we, we kind of know it, but just reading this book, you know, with, with the syphilis and the TB, just let me know, have they been doing biological warfare forever, you know, and um, those are just my observations. Uh, retired firefighter, did you have commentary you wanted to get in, sir? Retired firefighter, were you just listening or did you have commentary? Oh, yes, I, I, I was talking. I had Your volume is very low. We can kind of barely hear you. Oh, now we can't hear you at all. Still not hearing you. 
still give it one more try, then I'll get another call and then we'll just come back to you, see if we uh, can hear you then. Still not hearing you. Uh, while we wait for Firefighter to get his audio corrected, anybody that we have not heard from yet that you have commentary you want to share? Nobody else had commentary that we haven't heard from in the second audio? Yes, ma'am. I'll be here. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Sorry, Mr. Demery Four. Go ahead. Okay. <clears throat> yes, on this last reading, you know, it, uh, you know, I was just wondering why it was titled The Best Intentions. You know, it seems that we, I uh, know quite a bit about the uh, Tuskegee syphilis uh, experiment now after reading Bad Blood. <clears throat> uh, yeah, but, you know, some questions in my or in my mind, like when they chose the area to do the study, how did they know that it was a high percentage of syphilis in that particular area? And how did they know um, you know, where these particular uh, uh, areas were in conjunction with the medical institutions and the the uh, university. You know, I think it was, it looks like it was all set up. And, and it makes you wonder if the original guy, uh, Rosen, uh, what was his name? Rosenwald. Foundation, if he actually meant <clears throat> any good intentions in the first place, because when the doctors took over, it's obvious that they were not, uh, they did not have the best intentions of the uh, patients or the subjects in mind. They intentionally held back uh, medical uh, medicine that could have cured them. And a lot of these uh, so-called black diseases could have been easily uh, cured with antibiotics. <clears throat> if penicillin, of course, you know, was present, so we know that they intentionally did not cure those those men and then waited around until they died. But what we did not know was how many wives were, uh, you know, carrying the disease as long as well as the children. That wasn't mentioned in uh, Bad Blood, I don't think. And I'll have to say that it's hard for me to uh, completely exonerate uh, Nurse Rivers because it just seems to me that by her having these nursing credentials, she knew when she was actually uh, administering medicine and that the patient was getting better or worse. And then she uh, picked them up in a shiny black car, whatever. She knew these people and the dollar, whatever they gave them, you know, the median income was a dollar a day. You know, she made sure they got that. I just, you know, she don't deserve all of the blame, but it's just hard for me to believe that she was totally innocent either. And that tele, telefiral clock, you know, he was 
waiting around for the patients to die, and I think he died before the patients. You know, that's kind of poetic. Yes. And um, I think that's about it. I'll, I'll mute my line. Appreciate that. Uh, let's see, Mr. I mean, our retired firefighter, uh, did you get your audio situation corrected? Uh, let's see. Can you hear me? That's better. It's still a little low, but that's better. We can't hear you. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, comment uh, from the uh, fact that Mr. Fuller uh, says that uh, bad health all nine areas of activity are dominated. And and, dom- and, the, and the domination is it's designed to mistreat people. You're, the bad health is a result of it. So therefore, that states that the racist white supremacists automatically already know that from their continuous and codified mistreatment of us, that it's going to result in the things that we're reading about right now. Any uh act that they commit and or even if it's something that's called a natural uh, disaster type of situation, it's going to create cause havoc uh, on our health. Uh, the immune system uh, in, this, in this context is counter-racist behavior and or self-respect also are what I think are the answers uh, to uh, what we're reading about. But it's a very interesting read because it's shown from the standpoint of uh, through medical, quote-unquote, medical procedures. Actually, it's it's barbarian savage uh, procedures, actually. I would even put the word medical next to it on what what we're reading about uh, because the... The perpetrators, uh, who are white race soldiers, uh, they actually have the plan to mistreat. So it has nothing to do with true medicine at all. Uh, with this experimentation that they that we're reading about, uh, the way that uh, non-white people are, are deceived into thinking that their loved ones. Uh, first of all, dying prematurely because of the system of racism, white supremacy, and then as I've heard some of the other callers stating that even in, even in death, uh, you, you, you're getting mistreated. Uh, so, and as I, once again, and, and finally, I would just say, repeat myself and say that, that it, it's the end result. You, you're going to have bad mental and physical health as a result of the global system of race white purposes in this book is is uh, confirming that. Thank you. For sure. Uh caller at 0059-0059. Did you have commentary you wanted to get in? Um yes, um good afternoon everybody. Um Gus, I sent you an email. I received an email yesterday and I kinda just wanted to give everybody the time in reference to what's going on with, uh, in reference to the topic that you're um, talking about. And it says, white scientists says the black community is being targeted by the medical system. They are deliberately poisoning. And it was dated 
uh, May 16th, 2016th, and I only want to read the first sentence. It says, a scientist who goes by the name of Mike Adams, the health ranger, has broken the cardinal rule when it comes to snitching. He is literally exposing the white community, particularly particularly the medical industry and the hate they have for the black Americans today. And again, I just wanted to kind of pass the information on to you guys. Um, I sent you the emails. So I guess when you have time, there's a video and the rest of the article you can share with the, um, with the group. I'll go ahead and meet my line. Appreciate that, Joe in D.C. Someone uh, also put it on my uh, Facebook page. So if you scroll down, folks should be able to see it. I was able to download it. But, yeah, I think I almost played that for the introduction this week. But then when I saw the Tuskegee syphilis experiment was going to pop up, I changed my mind. But, yeah, right on time with what we're reading right now. Uh, anybody? Yes, sir. Good evening. Um, Tom Smith in New York again. Yeah, this book is, um, man, this is tough, man. This is um, worse than Henrietta Lacks. So, so, so this is way worse than Henrietta Lacks. This is, um, this is worse than Katrina. I mean, this is terrible. I mean, we haven't even gotten that far. I mean, we're getting out of slavery. And um, I look forward to seeing where this goes. And um, I'm, I only chimed in because I did watch that video with that um, medical guy. And um, I get equal cold. I was like, wow, it's breaking cold. But he was also practicing racism. And you listen really to how he's uh, putting it in the way he's putting it, you know. But um, I wanted to say that. Thank you. For sure. We have made a good bit of progress. We're almost halfway done with the book. Next week, uh, about the end, I think the end of next week, we will be halfway done uh, with the book. So we have made a good bit of progress. Uh, anybody that we have not heard from? Uh, at all have commentary they want to get in anyone that we have not heard from I assume everybody uh, that's with us now who has a hand up um, you didn't have anything if we have not heard from you uh, after the second audio segment uh, everybody's good everybody that wanted to share all right uh, let's see some of the things that I noted I was glad that I emphasized at least in my view I suspect that this is going to be uh, a major theme for the duration uh, of the text just white people lying uh, because that certainly is a major part of the uh, Tuskegee syphilis uh, experiment uh, and continued all the way throughout uh, this is four different decades where you got white people dying and other whites coming in and picking it up passing this off as a generational way to exploit terrorize and deceive uh, black people, but major aspect. I suspect that that's going to continue uh, for the duration of the uh, of the text. Um, let's see. I thought it was, and we got it multiple ways where it's coming in. Where she writes about Dr. S. S. Hindman, uh, where he estimated that national prevalence of syphilis among blacks at ninety five percent, and they say that it was no way to have any sort of firm. Uh, scientific foundation uh, for this number. They're just throwing numbers out. Yeah, that'll be a good one. 95%. Yes, 95% of the Negros have syphilis, and we'll put a gold seal on it, uh, and it'll be, you know, just taken as fact and repeated all over the world that they are phenomenal uh, at doing that sort of thing, continuing on to today, 21st century. Um, Let's see. I thought this was interesting when I talk about 
Uh, if you uh, know you have other things going on in the background, if you could use your mute button, that would be great. I uh, thought it was important. Uh, I know I talk about metaphors and similes and what have you on the program. I got to go back out. I got to go to the uh, Again, if you are doing other things in the background, and particularly if you know you don't have a question, you can just mute your line. That way we don't have all the unnecessary background distortion. As I was saying, uh, the metaphors, similes, I've talked about that consistently. Uh, what she wrote, she said, Dr. Joseph Moore uh, militated for Wasserman tests on all black men, opining that a mere history of a penile sore only would not be adequate in as much as the average Negro has as many penile sores as a rabbit has offspring. Now, once again, and I think she's already given extremely detailed information about this rampant notion of, you know, Negro savage sexuality and oh my gosh, you know, they're just uh, the, the focus on black genitalia I think she's talked about that in great detail, both with what we heard this week and even uh, for the first portion of the book that we've read up until now that's already there uh, but then even to compare, this is a simile uh, to compare uh, black people and having these penile sores uh, to a rabbit having offspring. I think rabbits, I think rabbits are even known. I think that's why they chose uh, the bunny as the playboy symbol. They are known as a symbol of uh, fertility, a representation of fertility, uh, that comparing that or using that in comparison to black people to again represent this threat of prolific Negro procreation. And oh my gosh, they're just going to have all these dark babies. You hear that all the way up to right now uh, in, in terms of the way that white people talk about black people. Um, the lies in this study where at first they defend doing this to say that, well, the Negroes are resistant to treatment and they're not going to do the correct thing, leaving out almost similar to what we heard in the first audio segment this week, not attributing black people, if there is any hesitancy to get quote unquote treatment, uh, that the history of white doctors like J. Marion Sims abusing and torturing black people uh, like Sam, we heard uh, a couple weeks back doing all of this. So, of course, black people would be leery of going to these hospitals, going to these uh, racist doctors for any sort of treatment, in quotes. Uh, so they say, yeah, the Negroes don't want any treatment. So, you know, this is it's all good for us to do this. And we'll just see how the disease progresses. And as Carmen noted, with the racist assumption that it's going to operate differently among black people and white people. I think uh, Miss Washington has talked about that a lot through the text as well. But then they switch it around that wait a minute, once we have all these free treatment programs, some of the Negroes, uh, some of our Negroes uh, might go out and get treatment. That'll mess up our, our data here. So we got to put in uh, implements to make sure that that doesn't happen as well. Uh, not concerned with truth. We're not even concerned with doing adequate science. I think that came up with Henrietta Lacks, where they weren't even doing good sanitation uh, with the studies uh, with Henrietta Lacks' uh, genetic material that they stole from her. Same thing here. We're not even concerned with doing quality science. We're, our primary objective is white supremacy, mistreating Negras and having fun doing it. Um, and I think she offers just a lot of great detail, and I think a lot of that is in uh, bad blood as well when James Jones was on the program in 2012 just talking about this is not even uh, quality science with what they're doing with this experiment when she talks about they're switching people from group to group now you're in the control group now you're in the infected group maybe you got a little bit of treatment maybe you didn't whatever you know we'll just we're still just observing these negras as they suffer and infect uh, their wives and children uh, it's been four years so I don't quite remember if he uh, James Jones uh, included 
uh, that the impact that this had on uh, the black people at large, not just the individual black males that were uh, being mistreated and lied to. Um, let's see. Yeah, the line to get the bodies really important as well. A lot of that reminded me of Margaret Sanger uh, with the eugenics program, and she talked about the influence that they had in this study as well, uh, how they said we need to get some black people, uh, pastors or what have you, that they can be the one to take this message, our eugenics message, and make sure we keep down, curtail the Negro population. They can do it because the blacks will be a little bit less suspicious of them. Uh, whites for many, many years have used and successfully employed that method of practicing racism, white supremacy, racial showcasing, making it seem that a black person is in charge and or just getting another victim of racism to carry out certain activities uh, so that we will be more easily tricked and not suspicious that ultimately a white person is in charge and orchestrating what is happening to us if it's going to be something that is harmful. Uh, there was a footnote that I thought was important as well, particularly given what we heard yesterday from Dr. Welsing's sister, Lauren Cresslove, where she talked about uh, Dr. Welsing being mistreated by the American uh, Medical Association. Uh, the footnote where she talked about uh, this is, I can give you the exact footnote here. This is footnote 22 for chapter 7. Some local American Medical Association chapters continue to restrict or bar blacks from membership until well into the 1960s. That was when Dr. Welsing was uh, finishing up her uh, schooling, medical schooling and what have you. So I'm sure she probably could have given us a lot of direct information on that. Uh, the only thing I can uh, add on, and I'm sure we'll get some more of this as the book continues with Nurse Rivers uh, and Dr. Eugene Dibble and some of the other black officials at Tuskegee and elsewhere who participated in all this. Uh, it seems that Nurse Rivers, and that's why I started with the audio clip this week, uh, it seems that Nurse Rivers did uh, even herself think that she was culpable in some way in what she had done, that she had not done the right thing uh, by these black families, these black people who suffered uh, through four decades of all this. It seems that she herself uh, had some regrets uh, looking back at, at what she had done, uh, which I think is important, but I just, I think it's extreme, at least in my view, I think it's always important under the system of white supremacy that people who are most to blame are white always uh, and I just to reiterate I almost replayed uh, what Miss Washington said that uh, somehow it just at least to me it is monumentally correct that Nurse Rivers is like the person people know she ends up becoming uh, the face the name associated with this massive act of just total medical barbarism in my opinion uh, is this black female not the white people who orchestrated and carried this out uh, and got money and had more power than anybody else in all of this. She, as I think as she explained it at the beginning of the book, she had this no count raggedy job making no money. Uh, and they just come and nab her and get a few other black people and say, yeah, we'll get a few niggers to help us uh, run our study here. I just, in my opinion, whites are able to do that successfully all the time. They are the ones that are in charge carrying out all of these diabolical acts and then they can orchestrate things so well that they'll have a black person who ends up catching the blame uh, at the end of all of this and the whites walk away as I said last week I believe scot-free and not just scot-free anonymous we don't even know their names they're not even the ones that get associated when we talk about all this um, we will conclude there uh, if you again if you're listening to the archives uh, and you have additional commentary, you can feel free to drop an email untiljustice at gmail.com untiljustice at gmail.com and we'll share if you have commentary feedback 
uh, on the book if you're listening to the archives and don't think you can participate live. And we will read as we go. We should have at least uh, seven of these sessions to go, maybe eight, but uh, maybe seven, seven, eight, somewhere in there. uh, If you have additional comments that you would like to share. Uh, With that, uh, thanks for everyone participating. Great book. Hope folks are learning a lot and looking forward to continuing next Friday. Uh, We'll be here tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, excuse me, 9 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific compensatory call in. Uh, We'll catch up on observation news from the past seven days, as well as workplace racism. Uh, If you have things you would like to share, dial in. Looking forward to hearing from folks live tomorrow evening. Uh, Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the program is constructive paypal button is in the top right corner of the page if you're not in the paypal drop us an email we will get you a physical mailing address Uh, if you can't find the article that uh, joe and dc referenced uh i think it's the medical ranger i think is the title that he uses again it's on my facebook page uh people had already uh posted it this week uh, you can check it out it's on youtube if you can't find it you can drop me an email or what have you and i'll make sure to get it to you but that's 2016 exactly what we're talking about in medical apartheid uh with that sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism that has come through as well frequently in this book. Uh, That's one of the best things that I think we could do. And even in an effort to manage, preserve whatever health we can manage under these conditions of white terrorism, uh, no alcohol or any other uh, poisons that they concoct and try to push on us. uh, We should reject all of that. Uh, We want to be able to think clearly and make phenomenal decisions uh, to counter permanently neutralize racist man, racist woman, racist child. Certainly if you're going to be out in a vehicle, passenger, driver, pedestrian, you do not want to be intoxicated. That's just making the job for Daniel Pantaleo Darren Wilson, Daniel Holtzclaw, any of these other race soldiers that's making their job way easy for whatever they want to do to you and hurry you along to the morgue so that they can continue even after you have died. Let's be sober, make great decisions, keep yourself safe, and let's just do everything we can to minimize contact with enforcement officials, which would also include buckle up every time you are in an automobile. With that, creator, we ask that you help us Remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all. For tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>